and Friends presents the Logcast, the only show on the internet in which fresh blogs are chucked about. And now, without further introduction, I present to you, Warhols! Hey, welcome once again to the Logcast. Uh, this is uh, your host, David, and uh, next, well, not actually next to me, uh, across the pond in Britain is my co-host, uh, Kev. Uh, I can't believe you just broke the illusion. Uh, I thought we I were know. actually inside a studio, you know. The... Yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I just broke the radio slash podcast magic. Yeah, I think the production values of this must have convinced people we're in some kind of LA studio paying $30,000 a minute. But, <laughs> yeah, no. well... Well, actually, okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with something here. I mean, not come up with something. I'm going to reveal the truth Go of how this it. is this is actually true. Uh, basically, um, there is a studio that exists in a rift in the space time continuum, and we can both go to that studio from America and Britain. And while we're in that studio, we exist next to each other. Yeah, I uh, I believe that is true. <laughs> Good, because it is true, and you're here, so you would know that. Talking about that, did you ever see the Donkey Kong Country Exposed video? Uh, remind me? It was a video that was given away by Nintendo Power in America and Nintendo Official Magazine in, in UK in 1994 to hype up Donkey Kong Country. Oh, no, I didn't see that one. Oh, I did. Okay. I did see the Donkey Kong 64 uh, Jet Force Gemini uh, tape, and oh. I still have the tape. <laughs> okay all right well i was going to there was a phone call they made from uh redmond is it redmond where nintendo of america is yes redmond washington yeah they make a call from redmond to uh over to twycross and the quality oh God. never mind i was going to make a reference but you know it's kind of oh, it's yeah, dead it's in the okay. water now we've kind of ruined our repertoire forever <laughs> <laughs> i think i might have seen bits and pieces of it online but for whatever reason i wasn't on nintendo's mailing list because uh, I got the Diddy Kong Racing video, I think was the first one I got. And then I got uh, DK64 and Jet Force Gemini later. Well, I got... Um, it was my sister's boyfriend at the time just said, Oh, hey, check this out. I didn't even have a Super Nintendo back then. And uh, it was just like a cool Nintendo videotape. I had no idea what Donkey Kong was even. So I checked it out. And man, I must have watched that VHS tape about 200 <laughs> times. It was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I saw, we're totally probably off topic, but that's okay. The first time I saw DKC, it was in a store display. Um, it was in a, I don't know if they have them in the UK, but it's like a big toy store chain called Toys R Us. Yes, we have Toys R Us. Do you? Okay, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, and I was just like, what is this? And then I was just like mesmerized by it. And Did somehow you... I convinced my mom to get it for me at some point. I can't remember how, but... <laughs> Did you used to have those Toys R Us commercials every Christmas where it was like um, that little jingle where they were singing about how many toys are under the roof? or uh, Not so much. They always had this obnoxious dr- giraffe from what I remember. Okay, so yeah. we're four minutes in and we've already had uh, two references that you don't understand. I don't know, Dave. I, right. I just don't know you anymore. I'm sorry. 
I forgive you. <laughs> right, I'll educate you in the week, and next week we'll be back with our Donkey Kong Country VHS and Toys R Us mid-90s commercial spotlight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, how's your week been, dude? Oh, uh, pretty good. Uh, been really busy with work, um, so it's been sort of keeping me from slacking too much to work on stuff like this, <laughs> but <laughs> I suppose oh. that's good. I should be working at work, you know. You should be. Uh, meanwhile, I have had a week off work because, unlike someone, I get six weeks paid vacation every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. O- over here in America, some companies just hate employees, and so they don't pay us. And then we have to save up money in advance, not only to cover the vacation the, of travel expenses and whatnot, but to cover the bills for the time you're mi- you're missing from work. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Dude, to be honest, maybe you're better off because on my week off, I've ended up more busy than I have most work weeks because uh, I ended up kind of seeing different people every day. I was drinking far too much alcohol. Uh, Jim from DK Vine came to to, uh, stay at my house for a few days. and You know what it's like when you're hosting for a guest. It's kind of, you're always worrying you have to get everything right and you don't want them to get bored, so you kind of you just can't really relax. Like, when you've got a buddy come over for a few hours, it's different. But when someone's actually staying in your place, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I don't think I've ever had anyone over for, like, longer than, like, two or three days. So, must be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, I've had a pretty good week. I had a disastrous blind date a few days ago. And I've got another one coming up tomorrow, which should be quite interesting. Um uh, oh, yeah, I almost got in a big fight on Thursday night. And <laughs> yet again, returning to that nightclub riff. Uh, <laughs> me, Jim, and Dwayne, who I've mentioned also a couple of times. It feels like I'm kind of in this weird world where I've only got two friends and I just happen to keep having new anecdotes every week involving them. <laughs> but, well, uh, that's good. The listeners will get to know them very well, I suppose. Yeah, and maybe one day they can come on as guests to talk about how brilliant I am. But <laughs> no, we hit a club Thursday night and um, we're outside just chilling in the smoking area around midnight and this guy came out and started trying to talk to us and he seemed a little crazy but we thought, okay, we'll humour him. And then he started talking about how he had a suspended sentence. Do you know what that means? Do you use that terminology in America? Um, just just kind of like he he got sentenced but he doesn't have to serve his time yet, kind of, something like that? Uh, kind of, no, it means um, basically instead of going to prison, like say, well, he said he had a two-year suspended sentence, so like uh, instead of going to prison for two years, you can you can go home, but basically if you do absolutely anything, even a petty crime like stealing some bread then you go and serve your full sentence in prison. Oh, okay, yeah. That 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 would kind of be like parole here, I guess. Yeah, it's that kind of thing, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, this guy was pretty crazy. He said, oh, I stabbed a guy with uh, a Stanley knife, which, do you know what a Stanley knife is? Um, Isn't that just kind of like a knight, like a brand name kind of? I think so, yeah. It's like a flip knife that builders use or workmen or something. Um but anyway, yeah, he said he stabbed a guy, and we were like, okay. And he's like, oh, I regret it. And we're like, okay, that's good. And he goes, yeah, because it damaged my knife. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so it was Sounds like a safe guy to hang out with. Yeah. Um, but then Jim coughed, and then he turned around, uh, and he was like, 
what the fuck are you talking about? And Jim's like, I coughed. And he goes, no, you're taking the piss out of me, which means uh, you're making fun of me. And uh, I, I do know that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so then it all kind of kicked off, and I actually, I don't know why I did it. I think I just protect him, wanted to protect my friend. I just stood up, and I said, look, he wasn't saying anything. Leave us alone. And then he just started talking about how he thinks he's got cancer. <laughs> and it it just went crazy. But we all survived, and he kind of trailed off in the end. Uh, Jim actually stood up and he ended up diffusing the situation himself. So, uh, yeah, nightclubs are great. <laughs> You're really selling that well today. Huh? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, now it's like I go back to work in two days and I haven't really done anything of note on my week off, except actually there was one thing, yeah. Perfect Dark Zero, you know I've been plugging away at that for about three or four weeks now. Mm-hmm. I finally got all the stamps. You you are a... I, I don't even know. You're, that's just that's just so impressive. I mean, or at least just impressive the gym has d- dedication. Because it really isn't that physically hard to do. It just takes a lot of mind-numbing time of setting up games over and over again. Yeah, it's about having the patience, dude. Um, I basically, I clocked in the last stamp on uh, Monday night. Monday Monday night, Tuesday morning. And um, I think my final playtime for the entire package, just for Perfect Dark Zero, was like 71 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much of that was spent on the campaign. Probably for, like 8 hours like eight, at most. 8 or 9. I mean, Okay, we did co-op together, so maybe 10 or 12 hours, maybe. <laughs> so, so that's like still at least like 60 hours of just grinding in multiplayer. Yeah. Oh I mean, a lot, to be fair, there were a few nights where I was constantly starting matches and then I'd fall asleep. So there's probably like 10 or 15 hours which were just spent on the menu screen because I fell asleep. But... Yeah, I know there's been a couple times where I've just like, Hey, this is like a really weird... He should be asleep now, and he's playing Perfect Dark Zero. Huh. Yeah, you must have thought I was just <laughs> playing 24-7. <laughs> I was like, well, he must be really dedicated, because he's not sleeping. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I finally managed to get it done, and I'm so happy about that, that it feels like a chapter of my life is now closed. And, you know, I still... I quite like the game, really. It's 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 an okay game. It's not a patch on the original, but I think it's definitely one we owe an in-depth spotlight to in a, maybe 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's still quite a bit of other games to spotlight. Yeah, uh, one of which, the next one I moved on to, the final game in the collection for me, which is Cameo. Now, Cameo, that's a game I never played before, and uh, I'd seen a few gameplay videos. I'd heard some really good things from a few friends, but I'd never touched it. And unfortunately, because my my week ended up being so busy, I've only managed to put a few hours into it, but I'm really liking what I see so far. Oh, yeah, you're in for a treat, dude. I I think Cameo is probably maybe the best of the 360 era for Rare. Yeah, I, th- I would think that probably. I know some people may argue Viva Pinata, but there's something I don't know. I, I like the more traditional nature of of Cameo of being an adventure game. It felt a little short to me, but there's still. Um, I never even ended up um, collecting everything, which is what I got to do in Rare Replay uh, at some point. 
So I know there's a lot. There's still like things to do even after you uh, beat the main story. Yeah, but from what from what I can tell, it's going to be a lot less of a slog than Perfect Dark Zero. I think essentially to get all the stamps, you have to. Well, the quickest way to do it, from what I can tell, is complete the game, collect everything, and then you have to beat like a couple of missions with an A rank, which is probably quite hard, but. I still think that's going to be easier than doing, like, 10,000 multiplayer matches or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's probably one of those things where it is hard if you don't watch a video, but if you probably watch a video and know where to get all the points, then I imagine it's probably not too bad. Yeah. So, um, I'm I'm looking forward to plugging away at that um, probably over the next few days. Uh, The only other thing I've been doing this week, uh, I actually picked up... Mario Maker a few weeks late. I don't know if you've played that yet. Oh, not yet. I want to. Like, I wasn't interested at all at first. And it's grown on me, especially how I've seen just, like, how many courses are being shared by people I'm interested in playing levels by. Like, I'll see, like, Rare employees or Platonic employees just, like, sharing their Mario levels online. And I'm sure there's even more that I don't even know about from other people who are notable it's just, I don't know, I feel like it's something that's going to develop a really cool community around, and just, I don't know, I, I, I gotta pick it up, I just, it's full price in America, and that really pisses me off, because it shouldn't be a full price game. Uh, I, I managed to get it um, on eBay, there was a digital download code, it was like £27 or something, which in, in stores it's £45, so that, that was a pretty good deal. And oh yeah! I don't I'm really, I don't really care about having a physical copy. And in fact, it's kind of, I think it's the kind of game which is quite cool to have installed to your hard drive, so you can sort of play a normal Wii U game and just switch out to Mario Maker without changing discs. Yeah, I, I can see that. Like, I, I'm still, I just love physical. I don't know. I, I'm torn. I love having physical games. I love having it on my shelf. I love the act of going to the store, getting it, unwrapping it. I've just done that for so long, it's hard to break myself of the habit, but at the same time, it's just so convenient to have it digitally, especially for Xbox. A little bit, like Wii U, I can still justify not um, buying a digital because there's so little hard hard drive space, Yeah, and the games don't install to the hard drive. But for Xbox, I mean, really, the entire the entire contents of the discs is immediately copied to the hard drive. Like, disc is just like a authentication key. Yeah. But, I don't know, I'm stuck in my ways. Especially for games like Rare Replay, where I want to own it physically. Yeah, I mean, if it was a game like that, or, I mean, if they did, like, a new 3D Mario adventure, like Galaxy 3 or 64 2 or whatever, um... I think that's the kind of game I really would buy for tradition's sake, but because Mario Maker, it's more of a tool than an adventure, I didn't mind downloading. Plus, it's only one gigabyte, which, well... Oh, wow. But for the Wii U, that's still a pretty... (laughs) So, uh, have you tried the built-in courses yet? Are they any good? I've tried a few of them, Uh, yeah, on the... uh, Because you can... There's, like, a few options available, and if you go on the 10 Mario Challenge, it gives you one of the built-in courses, uh, which, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. Um, I, to be honest, I spent most of my time either doing the, the 100 Mario Challenge, which randomly selects levels from around the world, or just playing around in the course creator. Uh, just today, a few hours before we started recording, I unlocked the final set of, 
objects. So I've now got the complete palette unlocked. Nice. Yeah, I, I think I could really get enjoyment out of that. I would have, dude, when I was a kid, I would have just been all over this. I actually used to, um, I used to draw my own video games, if that makes any sense. I did the but same I would, thing. Yeah, I would, I would just, like, take a sheet of paper, you know, make a little 2D platformer, and then I would just keep stacking them up, and then you could basically have whole levels and worlds on little pieces of paper, and I would have imagined if I had Mario Maker then, I could have just done it all in that. Well, I, I used to do that with, um, when I was really obsessed with Mario World and with Donkey Kong Country 2, I'd, like, draw my own levels, my own ideas. Of I mean, they're really crude, like, you know, just, just a pen on graph paper but uh mm-hmm. i mean it's so cool now just to be able to go at it and it's it's such a good interface it's really i'm surprised for nintendo it's really really smooth really fast um i haven't really got i think my only issues with the package as a whole uh they're just tiny little niggles but like when i'm creating multiple levels and linking them together into like a mini campaign it's a shame you can't design your own map screen i think it would have been cool if they gave you like a map screen creator tool because you've Hmm. just you've just got it's kind of like just like the levels stacked up next to each other you go from one to the other and yeah that's kind of sad i think it would have been cool if you could create like a mario world style map you know draw your own map link the levels via secret exits that would have been awesome yeah, I feel like that could be doable. I mean, even though it's not as crazy as even just uh, drawing. I mean, you could have kind of like little bits of like the Super Mario World islands that you could like arrange like building blocks or something that is kind of like pave like a path where all the levels levels are like like kind of like paving a road in like SimCity or something. Yeah, exactly that kind of thing. Yeah, that would have been good. Um, the other thing that I'm disappointed is you haven't got all the level themes for each game because they've only got six main themes uh across all four styles so you've got overworld underworld water castle airship and ghost so like with like mario world 2 uh sorry mario brothers 3 uh and new super mario Bros. u you know you've got like the second variant of the overworld which is like the grassy overworld so you haven't got that anymore which is a shame yeah that's kind of sad i wonder if they'll end up adding more later nintendo's actually been pretty good with their dlc lately possibly so who knows maybe they'll expand it a bit i mean i'm hoping for a mario uh super mario brothers 2 tile set i mean i understand the 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 actual gameplay they might not implement because it doesn't cross over with the other styles. But um, even to just have the the visual aesthetic of Super Mario Bros. 2, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Because that's actually... My, <laughs> it's a controversial opinion. That's actually my favourite of the NES Mario games. <laughs> really now? Yeah. Like, I I probably liked it better than the first one, but I still... I, Mario 3 is easily the best for me. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I like how different Mario Brothers 2 is. I mean, we know there's a reason for that, obviously. But um, yeah. I, th- I think it's very dreamlike, which actually fits the plot of the game. Um, I, I like. I think it's got the best soundtrack. Um, I like the variant, the various different abilities of the characters. How you can play the same level, mm-hmm. a different character, and kind of get a different experience. 
I'm really surprised they've never uh, revisited Super Mario 2 with kind of like a sort of sequel or spinoff of something. Most of all the other games they've kind of done that with. And they've kind of just let poor Mario 2 sit by its lonesome and yeah, be old. <laughs> I, I think the closest we got really was with uh, new, uh, what was it called? Super Mario 3D World when you've got the multiple characters with their Mario 2 abilities. But, oh yeah, that's true. But the aesthetic of the game was still leaning towards kind of a, mm-hmm. a hybrid of Mario 3, Mario World and Mario yeah, Land. Yeah. See, I think like a sequel would make like a good 3DS title because they've kind of done that with like Yoshi's Island a couple times. They've done sort of ones that are kind of like, I mean the new Super Mario games are like a combination of like 3 World and 1. And kind of like for better or being worse. a sequel to that, yeah, for better or worse. But Mario Two, they've never made any sort of effort to like expand on the formula they made with that. Yeah, I, I'd really like a 3DS pseudo sequel, maybe along the lines of Link Between Worlds, where mm-hmm. you know it's kind of basically one step above a remake. Um, you know, you could revisit the same areas but different level layouts, maybe a couple of new archetypes. Uh, you know, longer levels, and I mean, Wart himself, the final boss, he hasn't been seen since really. He his sprite was in Link's Awakening as a different character, but Wart himself has never returned. Hmm. Yeah, I know. He, dude, why not Wart and Smash Brothers, man? <laughs> well, I think we need to focus on getting K. Rule first, but <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I, I don't think we'll ever say K. Rule as much as I want. I want to believe. Like all I want, I want either K. Rule, I want Dixie, I want General Scales, and or Crystal. But You'll I know none of those never ever get happen. General Scales. <laughs> General <laughs> Scales is awesome. I don't. Care I like General Scales, but you'll never get him. I think. Uh, go all right. Smash Bros. Ratio to get to General Scales. I think first you'll need like four more Mario characters, three more Zelda characters, ten more Fire Emblem characters. And then maybe they'd consider scales. If anything, it's like, go on, go ahead. I mean, they dropped Wolf and Brawl, and they had essentially three Star Fox characters that are really similar. And like, scales is like something who could be the entirely unique move set, and that'd be a good Star Fox villain because Andros is not really going to work because he's a giant floating monkey head. Yeah, but I don't know. What do I know? I feel like Sakurai doesn't really care for Rare's characters that much, but... No. Whatever. I, I think that's why Crystal still hasn't made it in. Even though she's popular in Japan, it does seem like Sakurai's got a bit of Rare bias. I mean, I'll never understand why Banjo-Kazooie wasn't in Melee, because that was developed like before the buyout had begun. So, yeah. And this was back when Banjo-Kazooie were like top-tier Nintendo characters. Maybe one day we'll see a uh, rare brawler with kind of, not necessarily a clone of Smash Brothers, but I think it'd be kind of cool if they did some kind of like competitive fighting game or even not even like a fighting game. It's some kind of like party game with all the rare characters. I think it'd be really fun. That'd be cool. I think we're a little while off that. I mean, considering they're very hesitant to touch their IPs, even for traditional games. Um but yeah, I'd, I'd really like that. I mean, we we almost had that kind of with uh, Fast and the Furious. Yeah, Furious. I, I was definitely encouraged by all of the stuff I saw out of the Rare Jam yeah. that was shown off because there was a lot of things like that with a bunch of, a lot of game, little tiny games with a ton of rare characters in them. 
So I feel that that there might be some desire to do that there, whether that's something that ever gets, you know, officially greenlit on, like, a major scale. It's probably going to be up in the air, but... It's general scale, not major scale. Oh, didn't I? Wait, I'm really confused about the joke you just made. You said, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't worry. Like, for a second, I didn't realize you were making a joke, and I thought you were correcting something I said about, like, the character's name. And I'm like, wait, I didn't say major skills. I've been saying general skills this whole time. <laughs> Right, um, we should really we should really move on to the news because this was meant to be like five minutes. So, <laughs> right, so this week um, there's been quite a lot of news dropped, um, starting with, well, it was Conquer theme week, so it's mostly Conquer yes. related. Not it all... was just so much every day this week. Uh, yeah, so I guess we should just kind of start with uh, the first thing on the list of uh, things, which is uh, uh, Conquer Getting Medieval. Uh, you have any thoughts before I get into mine? Basically, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but have, haven't you not played Live and Reloaded? I actually have not, because I never owned an original Xbox. Okay. Well, you could have got it for the 360, but... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Because that was backwards compatible. I don't know why I never ended up doing I guess it was just... I think at that point, it really wasn't that easy to find by the time I had a 360. So, I, that's not really a very good excuse, because I'm sure I could have got it on eBay, which is, <laughs> I think, how I got Perfect Dark Zero back in the day. But, yeah. I, for whatever reason, I didn't play it. I'm sorry. It's the fan base. I'm sure they'll understand. Um, no, but but uh, with, get, with uh, Live and Reloaded, I quite liked the multiplayer. I thought there were some really good ideas in there. It's just the execution was flawed. Um, the it was actually broken because basically <sighs> you could like go sit above the spawn point. Like if you knew the maps and you knew where the spawn points were, you'd never lose because you could just keep killing people as they respawn. Um, it was yeah, it was a bunch of good ideas that just didn't get implemented well. And even Chris Seaver said at the time he kind of resented the fact they had to polish up Bad Fur Day for re-release because he just wanted to focus on the multiplayer so Mm -hmm. um, I think the idea of having an entire game fully devoted to that idea but with this interest in new medieval aesthetic I think that would have been really cool it wouldn't have been the Grand Conquer adventure we kind of wanted next but it would have been an interesting side game yeah I mean I would have played it like, honestly, though, for me personally, out of all the stuff I've seen cancelled, I think that one probably bothers me the least. Just because I'm not really a huge fan of multiplayer-only games. I like it when it's a component of a game, and I think it adds a great deal to it. But I don't know, maybe it's just me. It's like, I have a hard time being really excited about something that doesn't have any sort of single-player component. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Look, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too bothered about it. It's a shame, but... It's one of those games where I'm not going to lose sleep that it never happened, but if it ever got worked on, if it ever, if they ever sort of decided to restart that project, uh, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd certainly be happy to see it, but I'm not going to, like I say, I'm not yeah. going to lose sleep that we didn't get it. I'm sure if they do another Conquer game, I think they're going to go all out on the multiplayer as well, because that was kind of, it's kind of becoming like an important part of it with Live and Reloaded, from what I understand. So maybe we'll see something like, you know, 
it's assuming a new conqueror ever happens, but we'll see like a you know like kind of like a major conqueror's other bad day or big reunion two or whatever they want to call it, and then just have kind of like a massive um, multiplayer mode with XP and crazy weapons and maps and game modes. That'd be kind of cool. I don't know. I'd play it. Oh, I'd play it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe one day. But um, in the meantime, that kind of brings us on to our next news, which is. Yeah, this was really not very nice to hear. Um, basically, on Monday night, on the first day of Conquer Theme Week, uh, Team Dakota uh, announced on their on the website or on the message board that uh, Project Spark was going to transition to what's it called? The new model. Um, that a name? I don't remember. Basically, no more active development of new content, and they're just going to maintain what they have. Yeah, um, no more DR, and they they specifically confirmed in this re- in this press release that this meant no more conquer, no more conquer um, projects would be developed. Full stop. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like it could go on, but they just didn't mention it. No, they they specifically said. Uh, there'll be no more DLC packs for Conquer, no more tools, and no more yeah. gameplay. Like, yeah, it's kind of a shame that we never got to finish it. And I wonder if, um, if the what happened in the first one is even actually happened, or was more just like a little alternate world of what could have been. Yeah, but... I, I I enjoyed episode one for what it was. I don't know what you thought about it. I I played through it. I liked it. At the same time, it was kind of like, I wish this was actually a a full Conquer game. And the aesthetics were kind of weird. And it was still really Project Sparky. And it kind of... (laughs) Project Sparky. But it really kind of just kind of took me out of it a little bit because it didn't quite feel like I was actually in Conquer's world. And that bugged me a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, aesthetically, I really liked the the look of the game. Uh, I didn't. I thought the Project Spark art style actually meshed quite well with the Conquer world. But it was. I know what you mean. It kind of. It didn't feel quite like the grand sequel we'd been waiting all these years for. But um, I was interested to see what direction they were taking the series mm-hmm. in, and I was really impressed by how D- Team Dakota worked with the Conquer license and they seem to really put effort and really research the brand and you know the fact they got Chris Siever back and got everything signed off by Rare um, I don't know did you listen to the Brian Perry interview on the conversation uh, I did not another thing I did not listen to <laughs> yeah you should definitely check that out it was from it was about a week before Big Reunion came out I think and they kind of said how every single step of the way they'd always send it off to Rare to get their thoughts on it, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it makes sense, <clears throat> and I, I, th- I'm not really too surprised about what happened, um, just because the reception really wasn't very good from a lot of people in the fan base. There's a lot of people who found it like insulting, and I don't. I wouldn't say that it was. I was just happy to see the character back. But it was just kind of like another thing for a lot of people in a long list of like, you're almost getting what you want, but not kind of things. Yeah. 
I think the episodic model as well wasn't really what we wanted. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have minded if it was like one episode a month or if we at mm-hmm. least had a release schedule, but I kind of... Like, go on. I wonder, to me, I think it might have just been something it meant to be something small to kind of get the IP back in um, the public spotlight a little bit. And we've kind of been seeing Microsoft doing that with uh, Battletoads as well, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. They've been cameoing and everything. And, like, it makes me kind of wonder if it's at least something that's being considered um, to move forward as a full game at some point. Mm. Um, And it is definitely front and center uh, as sort of like a rare IP now. And they've really, especially, Ban- I'd say Banjo, Battletoads, and Conquer, uh, Rare has really been just kind of pushing and making it sort of their brand. Like, this is a Rare character. And I've really been enjoying that. So that could be, all of these things could be reasons why, I mean, besides the fact that they're stopping on Project Spark. But I think there could be a little bit more to that, too, where they might have stopped, I imagine they probably stopped this before even Project Spark's made the decision. And it could just be kind of preparing the fact that this is something we want to do more with later. So why kind of like continue the story and something that's just a little episodic game within a game? It really would have made any sense if they planned to make a real game later. Maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part. I don't know. Well, I think um, moving out of this in a positive light, I think I kind of said this week, uh, I hinted at it on the on the site when I posted the news story, but... I think there's two directions they could really take. Either Team Dakota, well, they're going to have to move on to something now because they're a first-party Microsoft team. Either Team Dakota might helm a brand-new Conquer game, you know, completely Conquer, divorced from Project Spark because they've had so much experience with the license now. You know, they've studied Conquer's world for the past year. Mm -hmm. Maybe that will be Team Dakota's next project. Or... Maybe it'll be one of the new Rare projects because um, obviously there's still a lot of love for Conquer at Rare. And also, I don't know if you saw, they released some stats from Rare Replay this week. And I did. Conquer is the most played game of the whole collection worldwide. And they they have to be they have to be noticing that. And um, I don't know if you ended up watching um, all that the big six hour stream. Um, back way back, uh, right before the game Rare Replay came out, uh, but they actually um, they were interviewing uh, Louise and Chris Marlowe, and they were kind of like joking back and forth about like uh, doing well. There's like the, the host who I think was just an Xbox guy kind of asked if there was going to be a new Conquer game, and they were they, they were kind of like iffy at first, and Chris Marlowe was just like. Well, buy Rare Replay, <laughs> and then maybe we'll make a new Conquer. <laughs> and then Louise was like, "Well, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 call up Chris and see what he's doing." I think he probably kind of meant that like half joking. But then she she also said that there is no Conquer without Chris Seaver, which also I thought was kind of cool of her. But at the same time, they may have just been joking. But at the same time, they didn't just like shut the door on it completely. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I mean Chris himself said in the the Conquer video on Rare Replay, that uh, he personally doesn't think that he would make a game like Conquer's Bad Fur Day again, and that it was so of its time. 
so I don't, I don't think uh, Chris Eva would have any interest in developing the game himself. But the fact that he came back to do the voice for yeah. uh, Conker's Big Reunion, I think it shows that he would quite happily come back and voice the character for Rare. So he wouldn't necessarily have to be actively involved in the development. Mm-hmm. But if we could at least have him back for character voices, I mean, at that, yeah. and that could be perfect because if he hasn't got the passion to develop a game, then I'm sure there's a lot of people at Rare who could handle it just fine. Mm-hmm. Like I, I honestly too wouldn't really mind if they told Chris Seaver, "You, we want you to make a Conquer game, but we don't. You can make it however you want. You don't have to make it a follow up to Bad Fur Day in the style. Like if you can do what you want with it, as like." A matured individual. I'm kind of curious as what that team would come up with. Yeah. With no expectations to make it anything that they wanted to. Like, because I honestly, I another game like Bad Fur Day would be cool, but I'm a lot more curious as to where how they could take it further. Like, there's there's definitely some stuff in the original Bad Fur Day that I maybe shake my head a little bit more as an adult as that I did when I first played it. Yeah. So. There's there's a few a few of the parodies don't really hold up and some of the gameplays, I know it's kind of meant to be a, a satire of that kind of game but yeah some of it is just frustrating to play so it I'd say out of all the N64 games I'd say it hasn't aged nearly as well as Banjo or Perfect Dark. Yeah, I, I was actually just uh, playing Conquer this morning and I'm at the the rock uh, the rock was called Rock Hard or Rock Solid Rock Club. Solid. And I, it's just it's just really pissing me off because I'm at the place where I just have to like piss all those boulders into the little holes and then roll them past like the dancing girls. Yeah. And it it's just like, oh my god! And then I I got one in. I thought it would save. Then I died. And then I realized I had to like start over again and get all three of them in again. Yeah, and if you fuck up, <laughs> like you have to go back to the the. You have to take the pills to sober up and then drink again to need another piss. And It's just weird because I don't remember this place giving me trouble before. But I don't really remember the game being hard, to be honest, but now it just seems really difficult. Maybe I've gotten worse, but... I don't think it's a hard game. It's just a frustrating game, and I think yeah. the older we get, the less patience we have. Really? Cause, yeah, because I, I actually honestly uh, find like Banjo easier than I did when I played it the first time. Well, I think that's because Banjo is so well crafted and at the top of its game, and you know that was they were trying to get the most fluid, smooth gameplay possible. Whereas Conquer, I mean, they focused more on the aesthetics and uh, like cinematic presentation of the game, where which was excellent. Which was yeah, that, I mean that in that respect it's incredible. But some of the gameplay elements are a bit frustrating, and just after this, you're going to have another probably a little tough time on the. The hoverboard section, which is... I don't know if you had trouble with that when you were younger. but I think I might have. I do think I can remember that bit being a little hard. Like, I don't remember anything ever really holding me up on the game. Which is weird, because I remember in Banjo, I got it took me forever to beat Quintilda. And when I played it on Rear Replay, I beat her on like the third, second or third try. Peter easily. My problem when I was a kid was on Gratilda, I'd just always panic and I'd fuck up because I panicked. Whereas mm-hmm. now I just try and relax and Yeah, she is still a tough boss, but I don't know, it's like, um did you ever finish Jet Force Gemini? Um I'm pretty sure I did. 
It's been a while since I played that one though, but I know I know I got all the tribals, and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have stopped playing that game until I beat it because I really enjoyed it. Well, I always heard that Mizar was one of the most difficult last bosses of any game ever, uh, and I I beat the game for the first time like a month ago, and I beat Mizar in like three tries. But <laughs> I, I I think maybe the dual stick modern controls might have made that easier for me than it would have been on the Nintendo sixty four. Yeah, I feel like the whole game's going to be a lot easier with those new controls. I haven't got into Jet Force uh, that much yet. Uh, it's just there's so many other games in the collection, but I've been meaning to. It is a really good game, one of my favorites. It's one of my new favorite Rare games, just just from that playthrough. I think it's incredible. Um, we, we should really push on into the news, but uh, yeah, that's that's definitely one I'd be interested in doing a spotlight on quite soon, really, Jet Force. Yeah. Okay, onward. Um, another thing that happened this week was there was a Conquer stream. And it was uh, basically we had uh, Robin Beanland, uh, Louise O'Connor, Adam Park. And at one point, Chris Davies and Craig Duncan were on there too for a little bit. And they just kind of like uh, talked about their Conquer memories and um, played through bits of the game. It was pretty cool, and uh, th- there was definitely some amusing moments uh, prompted by uh, Chad from DK Vine, <laughs> and th- they picked a lot of his questions in the chat, and there was a lot of rare- known Rare fans in the chat, and they were answering questions, and the best moment, though, was probably when um, uh, Chad asked if um, they could all say Evil Acorn so that they could acknowledge his existence in the Phantom. <laughs> And they actually did it. And they even did like a little countdown where they all said it all at once. And they're just like, one, two, three. And then everyone's like, evil acorn. Yeah, I, I actually totally missed the stream because I was that was when I was out hitting the club uh, with my friends. But um, I just a few hours ago, I started listening to the newest episode of The Conversation. And um, they played a clip from the stream, uh, the evil acorn clip. So I've missed the whole stream, but that's the one part I have actually heard. Um, and it's kind of funny because, like, I think, like, Louisa Connor's really baffled. She's like, oh, why do we have to say this? Who's that again? And then Robin's like, oh, he's from, uh, what game's he from? And they all get confused. And he goes, oh, I think he's from Pocket Tales. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think, I mean, I think Robin worked on Pocket Tales, right? I don't think Louise didn't come on until later. Uh, Robin uh, right, okay, there's some confusion about this, and uh, again, th- I only learned this a couple of hours ago, Chad kind of cleared it up on the conversation, he said, to the best of his knowledge, um, Robin composed the music for 12 Tales, Conquer 64, and uh, it was Evelyn Fisher actually uh, converted those tracks to chiptune Game Boy 8-bit tunes. So okay. Robin didn't actually, from the best, from what he knows, Robin didn't work directly on Pocket Tales, but Evelyn Fisher, uh, as I say, she converted Robin's tunes for the N64 project onto the Game Boy. But then obviously, Twelve Tales became Bad Fur Day, and that got completely rescored. Huh? Yeah, that's true. Because I don't definitely the music was was the same from what I've seen. I wonder, I don't think Evil Acorn has ever shown in t- to be in 12 Tales, but I wonder if the character was going to be the villain in 12 Tales as well. 
Possibly. That would have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> if only. If only. Uh, we'll, we'll get on to more 12 Tales in a bit. Um, Did you... Was there anything else on that stream worth mentioning? Because, as I say, I um, haven't checked it out myself yet. Trying to remember, it's like I, I, I was, I was had it in my ears at work, so I, I kind of faded in and out. Um, there was some interesting stuff going on in the chat. One of them was actually um, uh, Lay Loveday was uh, running the rare Le- handle. Lay Loveday. Lay Loveday. Le- okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, he actually answered someone's question, and we kind of I kind of wondered why he asked, answered this question, and we'll find out that in a couple segments down, about the, uh, you know, everyone always asks what the 12 tales from, and they always ignore that question. And then, uh, yeah, he was like, uh, he, he said someone is in the archive somewhere, and he was just like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and then he responded that up with like, yeah, but it was never complete, don't start asking for a ROM, or something like that. Or before no, I said before people started asking for a ROM, it was never complete, and that was that was kind of cool to actually finally see that acknowledged, and we'll find out why in a little bit. But um, should we move on to Platonic? Yeah, uh, basically last week uh, during the EGX episode, uh, I mentioned that I missed the Platonic conference, uh, well Q and A session because that was a couple of days before I went to EGX. Um, this week, Platonic have their site and they've actually uploaded a video of the Q&A um, they do you want to talk about the assets what, what was it they showed aside from this video uh, oh they have uh, they showed off the first character uh, that Kev Bayless designed yeah which was kind of cool finally because I've kind of been wondering what he's been because they haven't really showed any of his contributions yet and it's basically like this skeleton girl who seems to be stuck like roasted above a fire <laughs> yeah strangely dark and i wonder like like how how are you gonna help this girl like i imagine it's gonna be like one of those things where like hey i'm in a predicament i'm on fire uh you need to do so and so to help me or you'll get this pagey or whatever and then maybe you'll get back and she'll already be burnt to a crisp <laughs> <laughs> and the page just falls out of her skull out of her eye socket or something <laughs> oh god uh what else did they show um, they showed a uh, one of the ghost writers. Uh, we'd seen some concept art of them before. They actually showed off an animated uh, GIF, GIF, whatever you pronounce it. Everyone pronounces it different, I swear to God. And they showed off the 3D model of that, kind of like doing a little swoop. And it was yeah, I saw that animated Jive. Jive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So alongside that, as I said, they. They uh, included a video of the Q&A session, which the audio is a little rough to start with, but stick with it. It's about 45 minutes long, and about 5 or 10 minutes in, the audio starts getting better. They improve the microphones. Um, It was uh, Chris Sutherland, Steve Mayles, Kev Bayliss, and David Wise on stage answering questions. Uh, I'm not going to give too much of it away now, because I think you should go watch it, but... Uh, there are a couple of tidbits I wanted to point out. Um, I can't remember who said this, but they say towards the end that the first stage of ukulele is almost complete. Like, obviously, they're probably putting all their attention on the opening stage. Uh, that's almost completely finished, and apparently, visually, it's completely different to anything we've seen in the game so far. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see what it looks like now, because I know they did not even have close to a full staff. And I think especially with uh, uh, Dean Wilson coming on, who is, you know, an environmental artist on a lot of the more modern rare games. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of his deal, is just doing environments. And that was probably kind of like one of the weaker things with uh, what they had shown so far, is obviously the environments looked a little thrown together and repetitive yeah, and not super detailed. I kind of thought the, the first area that they'd shown already, it to me it looked a little bit too similar to you know the, the bonus world in Tropical Freeze, like the floating mm. temples in the clouds? It kind of just looked like that in 3D. Yeah, and I think it was probably kind of like that because they basically made a limited number of assets and then had to like make a level just with that. Yeah. I know they've. I don't know if you saw. Um, shortly after Dean Wilson joined Platonic, they kind of showed off uh, some new rocks he was working on. It looked pretty cool, and it was just like it looked a lot more. I mean, there was a lot more detail than what we'd seen previously. And I swear to God, it looked exactly like the rocks in the CFTs trailer. <laughs> but I imagine he worked on that too. So okay, all right. Well, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that take form uh, and. I mean, it, it shouldn't be long now before the pledges get their, what's it called, toy box demo for the PC? Yeah, they've. I was kind of disappointed they didn't talk about it in the update because I thought it was going to be this fall. So I'm wondering if that's going to get pushed back. Maybe, it, Cause it's, maybe it'll be like a Christmas present. Maybe they'll drop it. Christmas maybe, week. yeah, because imagine something they don't want to focus too hard on. And it sounds like, I mean, it's not supposed to actually be anything that's actually going to be in the game. So I kind of figured it was just going to be like the little, uh, that little demo they made with the Kickstarter, maybe with a little bit of improvements. Hmm. But we'll have to wait and I don't see know. on that one, I suppose. Oh, I just want to, I just want to be able to play it. <laughs> I know it's not, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it's not, I like that there's not an actual real part of the game. So I can get to see what it feels like without actually spoiling anything. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a good point kind of like if they back in the day if they had like a banjo demo a couple of years before if it was just kind of like a completely abstract area where you could just get used to the physics and the general feel of the game I think that would have been a lot cooler than just having Mumbo's Mountain spoiled for you a year in Mm -hmm. advance yeah I like when companies do that um like, uh, Valve did that for the first Half-Life game. Like, the demo was, like, nowhere in the actual game. Yeah. And I was so confused when I actually bought Half-Life, and I was like, where's that part I just played? <laughs> oh. But. Well, that's, um, yeah, so it's definitely something to look forward to when they eventually drop that demo. Uh, they also mentioned, um, someone asked David Wise, they specifically cited Donkey Kong Country 2 and said, uh, among fans of Rare, Donkey Kong, and video games in general, the DKC2 soundtrack is often cited as one of the best of its kind, if not one of the best soundtracks of all time. Uh, David seemed quite humbled by this and said, uh, obviously, he loved that soundtrack and it's uh, a highlight of a career. But he, he was specifically asked what were his favourite soundtracks to work on. And interestingly, he said... Battletoads Arcade and Tropical Freeze. <laughs> yeah, like I definitely understand Tropical Freeze. I'm a little surprised about Battletoads Arcade. Not that it's a bad game or a bad soundtrack. So I really enjoyed it and the soundtrack. It just didn't really feel like he would have had as much tools to really craft the type of soundtrack he wanted with that game. 
I mean, he, he obviously pulled miracles on the Super Nintendo, but I don't know. It just seems an odd choice to me. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think Battletoads Arcade, I, I guess maybe he had fun working with the arcade hardware. Uh, mm, that's true. Um, I mean, I guess if you think about it, when you're making, when you're like there in the development of an arcade machine, if you're having a real problem, they could probably just go over to the guys who are making the hardware and like, hey, can you do this so I can achieve this sound I'm going for or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think it would have, yeah, the, the hands-on development would have been, um, I think it would have been a lot easier for Dave on an arcade board. Because like you say, it's, it's custom-built in-house. Whereas the Super Nintendo, uh, I mean, we know they did work wonders and they kind of created an entire, an entirely new sound for the Super Nintendo, but they were still limited by the ultimate capabilities of the hardware itself. Uh, so, and I guess Tropical Freeze, he mentions, well, he actually said it was an amazing honor getting to revisit the license. And I guess Tropical Freeze was just what he would have done 20 years ago. You know he can finally do with you know all these different instruments. Not not really any limits. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I David Wise is probably my favorite video game composer. I no no disrespect to Grant Gurkope or any of the other other greats, but something about David Wise music is partially honestly drew me to Donkey Kong Country. Besides the visuals. And rare in general was just that music. It was just like that should not be in a video game. <laughs> <laughs> That's how do you doing that? Well, it's like nothing I've been prepared for previously. It was always like very repetitive, very minimalistic, and then suddenly you have this moody, atmospheric music just adding a different layer to the game. Well, even today, uh, you know, you can still blow you away. And I actually mentioned it on DK Vine a few weeks ago how Tropical Freeze. Um, Grassland Groove and Homecoming Hijinks, those two songs actually kind of moved me in a way I haven't been moved by video game music in a long, long time. Um, there's some there's some really good tracks in Tropical Freeze. Like on the whole, I don't like the soundtrack as well as the other as the first two Donkey Kong Country games. But when he, the when there is a good track in that game, it is some of his best work. There's just there's a few tracks in there I don't think. Just I don't know. I didn't think we're that. I won't say they're not good because all of them are good, but they didn't feel to me as like memorable as some of his past work. Mm. Well, I, I think I do think Grassland Groove and Homecoming Hijinks will be looked back on as some of the best songs he's ever composed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know which those two are, don't you? Uh, I know. I know this. I know the Grassland one. I know that one is really good. I'm trying to remember what the other one is. Uh, ho- so I don't know all the names yet. <laughs> Homecoming Hijinks, it's the main theme of the Vikings. It plays on a few of the mm. final world levels. It's like, you know, the the, the, the ominous march, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's some good stuff. I really liked all the boss, most of the boss themes, too, were all pretty incredible. And yeah. it was kind of interesting to see, like, um, like especially for this... I can't remember if the same boss fight was used, but I remember it specifically in like the seal fight, just to have kind of like that almost like metal influenced track with like the double bass drums and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Oh, dude, you've just you've done it to me now. After the recording, I'm gonna have to go and replay that game. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So the last bit of news this week, anyway, moving on from that, uh, was uh, yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah, well, a few days ago when you hear this. It was the Friday of Conquer Week. Um, big surprise, something we'd all kind of hoped for, but we didn't actually think it would hit this soon. Um, following up from what you said about Lee in the stream before, uh, they did a rare revealed about 12 Tales, Conquer 64. Uh, but they didn't just go over what we already knew. Uh, from what we can tell, and clearly, if you watch it, you can clearly see this, they're actually playing 12 Tales on a modern emulator. And I, this just completely yeah. blew me away. I know. I That was like the best thing I've seen on the internet in the last 10 years of my life. I was like, oh, and it's like so close. I want to like reach to the screen and like take that ROM because I, you, you, it's so obvious that it's running on an emulator. Even you can see a little bit of like uh, screen tearing going on. You can tell that what they're capturing from isn't quite syncing up right. And it's like, yeah, that's that's off an emulator. I want it into my veins now. Why are you torturing me with this? But at the same time, I'm so thankful of showing something of a game like I wanted since I was a kid, and then sort of kind of got but then kind of didn't it it kind of it scratches that itch in a way that now don't get me wrong ukulele looks incredible and i'm sure it will be an uh, an amazing game but this kind of scratched an even an even deeper itch uh amongst rare i think the hive mind of 90s rare fandom we're essentially seeing new footage from not just a rare 3d platformer but a very early stage, you know, pre-Banjo-Kazooie one. I mean, this kind of, this looked, to me, I thought visually, it was like the missing link between Mario 64's pure simplicity and Banjo-Kazooie's sort of more detailed world. This looked like the sort of step in between, if you get what I mean. Yeah, and just to finally, I mean, there's there's tons of footage of 12 Tales, but just to actually see it be clear, because it's, all, yeah, it's never all the footage is like terrible quality that we have taken off of probably an original N64 hardware, put through some old compression compression algorithm that isn't used anymore, and like this is like just direct capture off of an emulator, direct into the video in high definition, and it's just oh, it, it looks so good. Like, I mean, I get that maybe the game didn't end up being that fun in the end. I mean. I'm, I bet you it was. I bet you it just wasn't as good as Banjo-Kazooie, and they didn't feel that they could follow up Banjo-Kazooie with a game that didn't wasn't as good as it. Yeah. But still, I still want... I want to play it. <laughs> I know Rare will probably never release any playable version, but I'm just so happy that it's at least safe in Rare's archives. So the longest time, I thought that, that, that it probably wasn't even in existence anymore. Well... Uh... Correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, didn't we discuss a few weeks ago, it might have been off air, but I thought we did mention it briefly on the show, about uh, we thought it it didn't actually physically exist anymore, because there was something about when it was shown at trade shows, it was sort of played through a blank N64 cartridge hooked up to the development hardware, so when the system was switched off, the game was erased from the cartridge, and... Yeah, kind of. Maybe go on. Maybe they all weren't like that because that if that was the case, it doesn't really make sense for with Chris Seavers' tweets the other day about like 
someone stealing a cartridge because if they had stolen one of those, you wouldn't have anything. Yeah, but I mean, that's what I said at the time. Could he be joking around or not? But... Yeah, that's true. Or uh, what if um, that that was simply response to the cartridge getting stolen? They kind of switched over to that other method because they had gotten that cartridge stolen. That could be it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, but I'm just surprised that they still have an internal build, like on all those, like on the one of those some crazy old silicon graphics workstations. They must have like pulled somehow managed to pull that off of there. It's insane. I. All I can hope, and I, I know it'll never happen, but you know we've all sort of pondered about what DLC Rare Replay could get. But I'd quite happily give up any more retail game DLC just for a Conquer Beta or a Dream Beta. I mean, imagine if they did like um, I don't know something like the Unfinished Tales pack, which was like a Conquer sixty four demo a Project Dream demo and like an early Banjo-Kazoo 2.5D demo yeah I mean like yeah we all understand those games aren't complete and you know you can't play them through to the end but there's enough there that you can at least especially because of you know the sandbox 3D platformer level design you can still play with it play around in all the different worlds Mm. like it doesn't have to be complete just just give me like a level selection list have me jump into the different levels play what's there and call it good but yeah i don't know well maybe one day i mean we're closer now than we ever have been before yeah i mean the fact that i'm not encouraging thievery but now the fact that 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 beta is now a lot more accessible to a lot more people who are working at rare (laughs) i don't think it'd be morally wrong for someone to sneak that out on a flash stick when you leave the company just on that out there <laughs> <laughs> I would never encourage that kind of behaviour but if it happened if it happened I, I, I don't think too many people would hold it against you <laughs> but don't do it unless you do and then please put it online <laughs> right so um, talking about morally questionable things <laughs> um it seems that you've managed to uh, dust off a few more of your, these uh, these diaries that you found. I did. Uh, this one's probably a little bit longer than last one. It took me a lot, a lot longer to get it all uh, set up and readable. A lot of these are slightly uh, disintegrated pages. Looks like they've been been in the water a bit. So, but uh, thankfully I have a uh, expert forensic team um, that's now also helping me going through these and separating the pages and drying everything out and making sure that nothing gets lost. So, Well, I haven't heard the diary entry yet. You've told me a couple of uh, tidbits about it. And, uh, yeah, I, I think this could be one to uh, strap yourselves in for because <laughs> it made me a little bit sick to the stomach to learn certain things about... An iconic, yes. rare character. <laughs> you know, kind of like, uh, I mean, we've been seeing that a lot lately with people like Bill Cosby. You think they're just such great guys, and then you, you find out the truth, you know, so. And the truth um, I... can be <laughs> disturbing. So Very disturbing. Why don't you do all of us a favor and uh, whack that motherfucker on and give us <laughs> give us your best possible reading from 
the latest Rare Diary. All right. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to uh, provide accurate voice representation. I apologize if it's not 100% accurate, but get ready. Rare story time is about to begin. My father traveled all over the world. The Americas, Africa, Asia, even the underworld itself. Mr. Saberman would come home to England with treasure and tales for all who would lend an ear. One day, he came home with me. My father is thought of as a man whose travels showed a hunger for adventure. I know him as a man whose travels fulfilled his hunger for rape. In my father's unreleased book, titled... Mire Mare, the stories of the Japanese villagers, including my mother, he drugged and raped our laid bare. Once he realized that nobody outside of his boys' club was going to applaud him for it, he hid it away, seen by no one except me. That was quite the day when I stumbled upon that manuscript. Mire Mare is my name. That book was never about a swamp. It was about my origins. My mare was just a mispronunciation propagated by his rabid fanbase. Who would never believe their hero Saberman was a prolific rapist who sailed the seven seas in search of his next batch of victims. From that day forward... I became what my father is not, an adventurer. I sail the seas to help others, not brutalize them. Which leads me to today. Let me paint a picture for you as best I can. I'm sitting in a light blue hovercraft. The breeze is lightly blowing through my hair as our craft skips about the waves around Rivals Island. In front of me is world-renowned philanthropist, Mr. Ponce, a misshapen, pale-skinned man with a round torso paired with comically skinny limbs. The man refuses to wear anything but a pair of bright red underpants and a bowler hat. However, his mustache is so regal one barely notices his lack of clothing. Seated beside Mr. Ponce is a Carrington Institute agent, Joanna Dark whose cloaking tech was the only thing keeping the Datadyne agents who infest this island from detecting us. Today, her hair was red, but the color changed almost as often as her accent did. Secret agents will always be full of mysteries, I suppose. Manning the hovercraft is Drumstick, a giant chicken in blue overalls. He is said to possess the ability to travel between dimensions. But I remain skeptical that a chicken is capable of such things. This is my team, and today we are on a rescue mission. We were tipped off about unspeakable things happening on Rivals Island, but to expose it, we needed to get someone out alive. That man was Xander Bruce Oliver Xavier Avatar, and today we are going to save his life. Our hovercraft neared the dreaded climbing wall cut to the side of a pillar protruding from the ocean. I wrinkled my nose at the sight of bloated and battered corpses floating by us. 
Sunday to dine had no place for failures. Hurry up! He is already on the wall! I cried out as I spotted Xander clinging to the wall for dear life. With a squawk, drumstick sped the hovercraft to the base of the wall and cut the engine, leaving us with nothing but silence and the screams of those upon the wall. Okay, Joanna, let him see us, I said, biting my lip as my heart pounded in my chest. Affirmative, said Joanna, pulling an incomprehensible gadget from her belt and fiddling with it. In a matter of seconds, our cloaking shield was down. Hello up there, Xander! It's Mr. Pants! called Mr. Pants. I felt a tingle of relief as Xander looked down towards us. This was it. Xander let go of the wall and fell. Drumstick narrowed his eyes at the falling figure, and we positioned the hovercraft a bit. Ready, Joanna? I asked, gritting my teeth. Ready? Hold on, I'm activating the anti-gravity device, she replied. In a split second, Joanna had a second gadget in her hand, and with a twist of a knob, the hovercraft was engulfed in a zero-G field. I clung to the side of the hovercraft so I didn't drift off, but it didn't bother me. We had did it. Xander's fall had been slowed, and he was now floating in the air above us. Joanna turned the knob again, and he fell smack into the middle of the hovercraft. He was bruised, but alive. I felt a rave of relief flood over my body. We saved a life today, but this was only the beginning. Mire Mari Saberman, Rival Islands, September 28th, 2000XX. Oh, oh my god. Um. (coughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely may change uh, my thoughts on, uh, Maybe the main segment about the Spectrum games later. I I just um I can't believe it. One yeah, of um, one of the biggest video game heroes of all time turns out to be a a dirty rapist. I just I know. Um and and this actually just clears up a big mystery, um for uh, a lot of Ultimate fans. Uh, I mean, for those that don't know, there was supposed to be a, a Nether Saberman game called uh, Meyer Mare, and it was actually Mire Mare. Is actually about this game was probably actually about him trying to impregnate Japanese women forcefully. So, that's, I guess it makes sense that that was shelved. Oh my god! I just, I think I might have to be sick, dude. Just give me, a, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> You're okay over there, buddy. Yeah, I just... uh, You know, when you find out one of your childhood heroes is a dirty fucking rapist, it just completely... Oh, my God. Um, uh, Shaking that off, shaking that off. All I can think is maybe... Maybe this diary entry was planted by one of his rivals. I'm going to hold on to that thought, because... Oh my god. Maybe. I mean, it looks like it's written by his own daughter, so it's oh. makes it kind of makes it kind of hard. I mean, you know, maybe it can be okay though. Maybe maybe with his fall from grace, this new um heroine can sort of live up to what he never was. Okay. I'm good with that. That's fine. <laughs> I'm completely cured of uh yeah. 
Yeah, I feel fine now. Yeah. Look at the good things. I mean, we learned some interesting things about Drums today. I mean, he may have some sort of interdimensional abilities we never thought possible. I think it, you can attach any characteristic or any trait to any Diddy Kong Racing character, and it's not surprising anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, maybe he's somehow responsible for, like, uh, Banjo and Conker being there. Maybe he's what pulled them all together into Diddy Kong Racing to race against this pig. Maybe he controls the portals between the rare worlds, the rare dimensions, and maybe he's, maybe he created the rare replay gallery as kind of like a uh, an inter interdimensional portal between all these games. Maybe I think he has to have powers. I, I don't even know if you remember on uh, I don't I don't know how much you get on Twitter. Uh, but there was an uh, interesting um, back and forth between a fan, uh, Rare, and um, the guys who make Shovel Knight. Yeah. yeah, and they had implied, like, someone was like, hey, can uh, Shovel Knight, or the, the chicken and Shovel Knight, I can't remember his name, and Drumstick be the same person? And then Rare was like, oh, yeah, they were okay with this. Well, yeah, you know you know who actually asked them that, don't you? It was uh, MF Wolf from DK Vine. Oh, was yeah. it? Oh, that's right. <laughs> So clearly, a drumstick has some special abilities to go where no one else can. Yeah. And that's always a important thing to know about a chicken. Well, I've brushed up on my chicken knowledge today, and I didn't think I'd be saying that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, moving on. Um, I think, uh, looking at the time, I think we're going to have to skip right over the mailbag this week. Because, uh whew. Yet again, we've run away with ourselves. So, um, if you want to leave us any messages, we'll uh, definitely make an attempt to read them out next week. Hopefully, it'll be a slightly slower news week. Um, uh, do you want to tell them the address they can email us at? Yes, it's uh, rareandfriends at gmail.com. And that's R A R E A N D F R I N D S. It's always hard for me to spell in my head. Dot com. Yeah, rare and friends are full words. Yes, that's, I should have just said that. That was a lot easier. <laughs> I, I didn't want someone trying to like put like an ampersand in there or something. Yeah, no, okay. Well, they've got that now, I think, after your slow yes. reading and my quickfire remark. Um, also, there's another <laughs> way. Uh, if you want to join the Rare Friends forum, just head to rarefriends.net, click forum. Uh, you can. There's a specific subsection specifically for the logcast. So if you want to leave any thoughts regarding the most recent episode or maybe an older episode, uh, and uh, if you want to leave a message directly for us to read mm. out on the show, just hit us up on the forums. Um, we're slowly getting a slightly bigger community. It's. I didn't expect it to explode overnight, but there are more and more members joining. Discussions mm -hmm. picking up a little bit, so. Uh, yeah, just come join us, and uh, we're more than happy to read anything out on the show, as long as it's not. Yes, just just leave more explicit comments like Scraps sixty nine did. Yeah, um... <laughs> I don't know if we'll be reading that one, but yeah, leave your uh, cum shot comments uh, in your own <laughs> head. Thanks. <laughs> right. Um, so I don't think we actually mentioned it at the top of the show, but if you've clicked on the episode card, you'll already know uh, this week. Our main segment is going to be talking about the Spectrum games, uh, specifically the Ultimate Spectrum games, which are included in Rare Replay, because I think they're the only ones we've actually played. Yeah, 
And, and also, speaking about the title card, I totally forgot to bring this up uh, earlier. I should have talked about this in the Twitch chat segment, but you'll notice um, that uh, Log has taken on a different appearance in the title card this week. Um, that's because there was a little bit of, a, of an implying that uh, Craig Duncan could have been the Lord of Games in the Twitch stream. So I thought that at least for an episode, we should modify the image I've been using to more accurately reflect the character. So I, I hope you enjoy that. Now, and if you do you think this is uh, Craig Duncan is trying to send a message to us that he wants to be the head of our podcast? Maybe, 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 maybe that's the only way he can give approval. Though I'm pretty sure it wasn't him directly that said that. I don't even remember. Like I, can't, I honestly, the, what was said in the Twitch chat and what was actually said in the stream is like all blurred together for me. I was like, was this actually said or was it just people messing around in the Twitch chat? I'm not even sure anymore, but it's funny, so I'm going to do it. Well, um, I'm, I'm actually really good. I missed that Twitch chat, to be honest. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was. Um... So, yeah, sorry to take you off track there, but I thought I should offer an explanation. <laughs> no, that's cool, dude. Um, so, uh, yeah, so back onto the Spectrum games. Um, do you want to sort of, uh, for anyone who's not aware, do you want to give like a brief rundown about Ultimate's beginnings? Uh, yeah. Um, Ultimate, I believe it was uh, 1982 that the Stampers founded them. Um, they basically were the precursor to Rare. They were called Ultimate Play the Game. Though they were actually an entirely separate company at that time. And uh, I'm not sure how many staff were actually working for them, but they basically just churned out a lot of really tighter, uh, really popular personal computer titles. And when I say personal computer, I'm not talking about like Windows or DOS PCs. This was like uh, primarily for the... Well, I guess I'll use the British term because it was never released here. The ZX Spectrum, um, which was basically like a Commodore 64, except with worse graphics. <laughs> um, I don't, did you ever have an opportunity to even touch one? Or No, actually. No. Um, the Spectrum is one of the few sort of big hitters that I've never ever... I've seen one, actually, at a game show I went to in London a few years ago. But I've never actually played one or seen one physically yeah. in action. Um, you know, I've... see that's more than I've seen. I haven't even seen anything except the internet picture, being that the system was never released in the United States. <laughs> excuse me. You excuse. But yeah, there was. My understanding is that this was like it was like a big deal when Ultimate Play the game put out like release, and this was like you know, this was the computer game you would go out and get without. Uh, reading anything about it. If it had Ultimate Play the game on it, that was something you would want. And I'm a little bit young. And actually, I just turned 30, so I like that I can call myself young. I'm a little bit too young to remember that being born in 1985, the same year as Rare was formed, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they they basically produced... Uh, I can actually probably get the exact number if I looked on my own website. I feel like they probably produce maybe like 15 to 20 games maybe a little bit less and then eventually the stampers sold the company to uh, u.s gold and then formed rare and um u.s gold went out of business and then they were able to use the old, old ultimate characters again yeah there was actually a little bit of crossover because um they created the rare 
company in 1985, uh, and that's when they started secretly reverse engineering the NES. And at the same time, <clears throat> Ultimate was still going, releasing Spectrum games, uh, and they kind of they trailed off on their uh, Spectrum development because they were purely focused on the NES. And um, I think didn't they sold to US Gold. Um, a little while after they created the Rare name, because in, in some of the later Ultimate games, they've actually got the Rare... Uh, they've got the name mm-hmm. Rare in the credits. It says Ultimate, and then underneath it'll say Rare Designs on the Future. Oh, really? Yeah. Did not know that. I mean, I know they added it into... I think they added it into the Rare Replay versions. I'm not sure about the originals. Yeah, no, I actually... I, actually did a little bit of research for once yeah in their late good job <laughs> in the later ultimate titles well the later spectrum titles um they always had rare designs on the future in the credits hmm. so um there were oh, well i mean it makes sense the cross promotion because they wanted to get the rare name out there because they knew at the time the plan was to you know they were hoping to get a contract with nintendo and so they wanted their new company name to be out there and to have people to make that link with Ultimate to Rare because Ultimate back then in the kind of cult British PC gaming circles Ultimate were highly respected they were pretty much for the spectrum what Rareware were for the Nintendo 64 so yeah it's it it seems a little bizarre to me because it's sometimes the games feel a little bit primitive going back but then if you like look back upon what else was around this time for personal computers, they really were at pretty much the top of the game during that time. Mm. I mean, I can't think of any other, um, you know, Commodore 64 games or that really hold up as well as uh, Ultimates games do. Yeah, I mean, I do... There's been a couple of games I've had a few issues with. I mean, we'll get into them sort of a little later when we cover the games game by game, but... Uh, overall, I'd say at least two or three of them have become sort of standout favourites to me on Rare Replay. And even the worst of them are still well-designed games that really influence the industry. It's just they're a little hard to access today in, with modern gaming standards, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think probably Nightlore might fall into that category <laughs> a little bit. Um so my personal history with the spectrum uh as i say i've never actually seen one uh being played i've just seen the console at a game game fair um but i actually one game which i'm pretty sure we both got the same experience with jetpack uh was included as a bonus on donkey kong 64 uh and it it was actually required to unlock for 100 percent completion well even to get to the last boss (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so if you didn't want to play Jetpack, you pretty much had no choice. Yeah. But I, I don't look at it. I, I actually, I enjoyed it a little bit. Um, I think I ended up enjoying it a lot more later with the Jetpack uh, Refueled re-release. Because yeah. it wasn't quite as forced upon you. <laughs> and honestly, it, 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 it really made the game seem a lot more fun when you immediately had to go play Donkey Kong Arcade right after it. Because, oh my god, that game. Getting the coin in freaking Donkey Kong Arcade and DK64, that was just 
maddening. I almost wanted to like stop playing at that point. Well, it, it's because you had to do it with one life, and that was absolutely yeah. ridiculous. I've still got no idea why they set the wall that high. It was just stupid. With Jetpack, it was like you just have to get 5,000 points and to get the railway coin. And really, all you have to do is just like stand there and shoot on the first level. So to me, it was—I never thought it was difficult in DK sixty four. Yeah, it wasn't. It was—it was just like a cool little piece of history. And yeah, I know. I—I I think I wonder how many people are just like so confused by that though, because like, what is this game? We have never seen it before, especially in like America, where people have never played any Spectrum games. Or, I don't even know. I think there might have been a couple Ultimate games that were like ported over to the Commodore sixty four that made it over here. But yeah, ninety percent of their back catalog I don't think ever made it out of Europe. I don't know. How far did the spectrum go? Do you know? Did it ever make it out of like Britain? Was it like all around Europe? Or was it just kinda like a localized thing? Um I'm not actually sure. I'll tell you what, I'll check right now. Uh, <laughs> live on air. Um Live research. Whatever program has live research. <laughs> um <clears throat> just waiting for it to load this is going to be riveting podcast material um, <laughs> type on a keyboard so it looks, sounds like you're doing something there you go he's he's hard at work folks <laughs> hard at work right so it was released in the uk um 1982 33 years ago yeah 21st of april that memorable day um uh from the looks of it it just hit the uk market i mean i imagine there were probably a few like obviously uh, gamers in europe would probably import it if they were interested but it looks like it was only officially released in the uk uh although it sold five million units which when you think the population of the uk in the 80s was like 60 million that's pretty impressive yeah, I mean, like, from, like, everything I hear about it, it just always sounds like this was a big deal. This, for people who were in that time, it was almost like their NES. Yeah. Like, there's, like, that amount, amount of love for it. Yeah, well, I've got, um, one, my friend, uh, Rob, he's, like, uh, he's in his 40s now, he's, like, 42, and, um, uh, we've always sort of got on and have very similar interests, um, in pop culture, like, similar music, TV, movie taste, but... Uh, he never really understood why I was into games. He always saw it as kind of an infantile medium. But he, he did say he had a lot of fun on the Spectrum when he was a kid. It's just that was, to him, that was the end of gaming. Like, he never, he didn't really carry on with the NES or anything. Yeah. Um, so so to him, video games are spe- Spectrum games. I think there's people like that over here, except it's more with, like, the Atari. Yeah. Like, I, I talked to some people, you know, they have no interest in video games that they may still remember playing, like, Atari and Pong and stuff as a kid. Which I guess some people... I guess that's the the equivalent of, like, phone games now. So those people might still, like, play phone games. But it's, like, anything that's more than a high score, they don't really have much interest in. Yeah, and I suppose... Um, did you see the movie Pixels? I refuse to see that because it looks horrible and I don't want my brain to die. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, I had to watch it because my eldest son really wanted to see it because he's in all the commercials. And um, it's not actually that bad. It's not good, but it's it's okay. It's passable. It's but it 
it has Adam Sandler and Kevin James in it. How can it be good? How can it just... I don't know. I hate those guys Adam so Sandler is a very, very talented comedian who basically took the easy path in life and went the wrong direction. I, I do believe he has genuine talent. He just... He, he does it for the paycheck, and that's why 90% yeah. of his output is, output is shit. Yeah, I shouldn't have probably put hate as, as such a strong word for Adam Sandler, because I have enjoyed some of his past work. Yeah, look, I, it's just I, I still what he is now though is very different than like when he actually gave a crap about it about comedy. Yeah, like some of his SNL stuff was good I've seen on YouTube and um I think Billy Madison is one of my favorite comedy films because it's so sort of it's uh, it's so dark and twisted and warped. Mm-hmm. Um Happy Gilmore as well was a really good film. Um, most of his 90s films were okay, and then he kind of just started producing sh- like really shitty movies. He's just like, I'll be in anything now. You'll pay me? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Kevin James is kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Like, I did you did you ever see Hitch? Uh, no. Yeah, he was. I don't think he so. was good in that. Um, that was like 10, 15 years ago. Um, Mall Cop was another movie I had to watch with my son, and it's kind of like a guilty pleasure for me. Did you Did you see Mall Cop? <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately did see Mall Cop. Are you going to see the second one, one of the most panned movies of all time? <laughs> I, right, okay. Mall Cop, the original movie, I think it's kind of like Die Hard for Kids, but it's... <laughs> I guess. It's not a great movie, but it's kind of so bad it's enjoyable in a way. Um, and I do think there are a couple of moments where Kevin's genuinely good, like the opening, like the scene where he's showing the new guy around. It's kind of funny if you turn your brain off. Um, yeah, it's just that so much of his humor revolves around, "Hey, look, I'm fat and clumsy, and I fail at doing things. Look, I just fell over." Everyone laughed. Yeah, I mean, I watched the second movie because obviously my son loved the first one, so we watched that um, like a few weeks ago, and that was complete shit. I, there was one joke I really liked in it. Um, I really loved the running joke where the really hot chick, um, he assumed she fancied him, and it wound her up so much that she ended up, that she did fancy him. Um, I actually <laughs> thought that was pretty funny the way it was played off, his uh, complete ignorance. Um, but yeah, overall, that was a horrible, horrible film. So yeah, uh, back, back to the... <laughs> I was only going to make a tiny little point about Pixels. Um, just Sorry, I had to express my dislike of Kevin no, James. Fair enough. Um, Pixels <laughs> is not a great film, but what I was going to say was the main character, Adam Sandler's character, um, the point of his character is that he was huge. He was basically the arcade master but then when he failed, basically he lost out at the sort of world championship arcade tournament thing. And that kind of put him off games for life. So, you know, he was obsessed with arcade, you know, like Donkey Kong, Centipede, uh, Space Invaders. But um, mm-hmm. he had like no interest in the gaming industry past that point. So it's kind of the same thing as what we were saying about Spectrum players and Atari players who don't care for anything post-1985. Yeah. Which seems weird to us, but I can understand. Like, I, 
I remember hearing um, someone that really like people actually didn't take games like um, like a lot of Nintendo games seriously at the beginning because there was like no high score system, and there was like why would anyone want to play this? You play for the competitive. You play to like up your buddy and try to beat his score, and that's why you play. And then people were just like, you know, these games don't make sense because they're like there's no really competitive score based system anymore, which is so weird looking back because. Now I think high scores in games are so superfluous and unnecessary. Like when I played New Super Mario Brothers and you got the score counter in the corner, I'm like, who really gives a shit about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, that game doesn't even have like global leaderboards or anything. Yeah, um, you know, some games I still think it's okay. Like um, the Sonic games, where it's like an individual score for that level. I can kind of see it. Like, it can be fun to try and top someone's score and, you know, to try and get an S rank. Um, that's okay. But, uh, yeah, for ga- for games like Mario, and I, w- I was actually very happy Donkey Kong Country never bothered with the score system because it's... Uh, yeah, that was, I think, one of the things that was so refreshing about the design of it and that, that the HUD just disappeared when it was not in use. That was another thing which was just so revolutionary because it, it just took away everything that reminded you this is a video game. Yeah. Um, you know, like yeah, you grab a banana and then it just vanishes off screen within a couple of seconds, and yeah, I, I, I just, I, I, it's baffling to me to think people actually turn their nose up at the NES just because you know it tried to move the industry forward and you know it, it, games stopped becoming about high scores and became more about you know, creating these immersive worlds. Uh, I, I mean, you think about something like Zelda or Metroid, you know, you, you just think, well, it's it's kind of getting lost in this world and a mm-hmm. score system would just remind you that you are playing a video game. It would really serve, like, no point, especially because, you know, score-based game, games are meant to really not have an end that's obtainable. There obviously some people can get that far, but yeah. for the most part, 90% of the people are just going to play it until they die, and then they get a high score, and then they'll play it until they die the next day. And you, you've got some games which kind of got the balance just right, like uh, Donkey Kong Arcade. You know, it's four levels, and you get like an ending mm-hmm. cinema, but then it loops around and gets harder and harder. But yeah... Um, not really necessary score system for me. I I guess I missed the mark, uh, you know, because I came after the. I was born in 1988, so I just I grew up just not caring about scores. To me, video games were about it was an experience and an adventure, an adventure that had an end. Yeah, I know. Same here. I remember. I mean, I don't even Mario One. I think I played later than Mario uh, Two and Three. Yeah. The first game I remember playing, I think, was Super Mario Land for the Game Boy. So I've, I probably very well played some arcade games before that. I just don't have any direct memories of it, but I remember playing Super Mario Land and being amazed <laughs> by those terrible, terrible graphics. Yeah, the first game I ever played was Super Mario Brothers on the NES, which it's a bit of a it's a generic one, but oh well, yeah, not a bad yeah. one. I'll, I just never had the cartridge, so I did. I don't think I actually. I played it in the arcade. I remember playing the arcade version a little bit. I don't think I ever had like a proper time with it though until uh, Super Mario All Stars for the Super Nintendo. Oh, so you didn't really have 
the eight bit version, you had the remastered one. Yeah, I had uh, when I had an NES. I had like I remember having like three games, uh, like Super Mario Three, Super Mario Two, and then like Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers or something like that. Yeah. And we didn't have it for very long, because um, I don't. Really, it was like I feel like it was only like a short period that we had it. And then my mom got rid of it because we played it too much. Oh no! Why? <laughs> yeah, and then um, and then we we eventually got a Super Nintendo for Christmas, like a, some years later, and we had we had like a Link to the Past and Super Mario All Stars with it. That's a pretty cool way to start. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> can't go wrong with that. <laughs> Super Mario World might have been involved as well. Oh yeah, I think it was because there was a bundle deal at that time. I don't know why I still remember this. But it bundled Super Mario World and Super Mario All-Stars with a Super Nintendo. And then we got Zelda as, like, the extra game on top of that. So we got, like, three games and a Super Nintendo for Christmas. But correct me if I'm wrong, in America, you didn't actually get the the cartridge with Mario World on the Mario All-Stars cart, did you? Oh, that actually existed, but I don't think it came till later. That wasn't what I had. I had two separate carts for both. But there was a dual cart that was released later. I remember seeing that. I still see it in, sh- in really old used game shops from time to time. Yeah, I've got like two copies of it for some reason. Yeah, the interesting thing about that um, is that they actually changed the sprite for Luigi in Super Mario yeah. World to look different from Mario. And we're totally on a tangent about Mario. <laughs> this is like the Mario episode. We've talked so much about Mario. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Well, let's push on then. Um, I actually I had a... A good way of splitting off into the next uh, the next category. <laughs> you know, you were talking about high scores and how that's such an alien concept, not having an end to a game. Um, well, the first Spectrum game we're going to talk about, obviously, Jetpack. We've already mentioned it, but um, yeah, the real push of Jetpack is about high score, really. Um, like there are only sixteen levels, but unless you really stopped and thought about it, you know. In this case, there's an achievement that tells you when you've cleared all the levels. But if you weren't really paying too much attention, you wouldn't notice that you've got... Because there's no end in cinema. It just loops round to the the first level again, but slightly harder. Yep. <laughs> it's like, now you're back. All your efforts are in vain. <laughs> this poor guy just keeps building his ship and crashing it forever. Yes, I, I, think, um, I think maybe Jetpack has some sort of hidden philosophical message about the futility of life. <laughs> I'll buy that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Jetpack on Rare Replay. Um, you've got the original Spectrum version uh, as the first game in the collection, um, which, you know, and it re- much like the other Spectrum games, it recreates the experience almost perfectly, like slow down intact. Um, you've also got, as part of Jetpack Refueled, the 360 live arcade game, which is in the collection as well. You can play... There's a retro mode on that, which is the Spectrum game, but it runs a lot faster and smoother. There's no sprite flicker or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I think I prefer the original Spectrum version on Rare Replay, uh, if anything, because of the rewind and save state feature. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just gonna say because I can no, I can't get past the 16 levels on the Rare Refueled no. uh, or sorry, Red Jetpack Refueled version. <laughs> At the same time, I do feel like it's slightly a jip that out of the 31 games, we basically get two versions of Jetpack. (laughs) 
Like, I would have been okay with just having Jetpack refueled and got another game as the 30th. Yeah, but, but it's... It would have been a bit weird having the first game not be Jetpack, because it was Ultimate's first ever game. Yeah, I, I understand the decision. Yeah. I think it really comes down to it is that I just want more games yeah. in the collection, and please release them as DLC. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so Jetpack... Um, so we've already touched on it quite a bit, but essentially, yeah, you're just um, you're a spaceman called Jetman. That was like that later came out as his name, like retconned. Um, and you just you're building a ship, putting it back together, fueling up, and flying to the next stage. And this repeats, you know, constantly. Um, you can hover, you can float, uh, and you can. Um, you've got a gun you shoot enemies uh it's for the time i found it was like a really fluid game like compared to some yeah. like if you play like space invaders how slow paced that game is compared to like jetpack yeah jetpack it for the time i think is a great game and i think it's probably my favorite about all the spectrum titles that might be a slightly biased opinion just because of its inclusion in dk64 so now there's there's nostalgia attached to that title where there isn't for me for the other ones. But still, I think it's it's just, as far as high score-based games going, it's it kind of reminds me of like, uh, some of those sort of super addictive phone games they make where you just keep trying to top yourself, like uh, kind of like Flappy Bird, which is an entirely different <laughs> gameplay, but it's the same kind of thing, where it's like you sort of get a little mad when you die, and then you want to keep going yeah. the next time to get farther. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree with that, um, and I, I think it's it's there's nothing wrong with calling it the best Spectrum game on the collection because it's so well rounded and it's so accessible. That's the thing, like to to gamers new and old. I think it's definitely the most accessible classic era game on the collection because it it's literally pick up and play. The controls take two minutes to get used to, you know, just. I don't know if you probably play it the same as me. You just you never let go of the A button, so you're constantly firing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing you really vary is you know whether you're hovering or not. But aside from that, just keep shooting, keep blasting. Um, you know the aliens change patterns and do become more difficult later on. But if you can get a pretty good, as long as you get good at maneuvering yourself around on the screen. Um, it's quite a fun game to play. It's never too frustrating. And if you die, it's usually your own fault. Yeah, it doesn't seem quite as unfair as, say, uh, Lunar Jetman does, which we'll get to in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy patterns usually aren't too bad. Um, I, get, I don't know if we're really talking about Jetpack Refuel, but I think that one, even though there's obviously, in some ways it's easier because of... Um, actual save features some of the enemy patterns get really weird in the later levels of that yeah that's that's a different kind of difficult you know that um they intentionally make sections far more difficult because of the save feature um whereas the classic game i think in the original jetpack isn't there only like eight variations of alien yeah that sounds about right i mean there's 16 stages and i'm trying to think if they, they, they usually change aliens up every stage, every stage for the most part. Yeah, there's, there's what it is like. Yeah, there, there, there is. There's eight sets of aliens because starting with level nine, it loops back round to the 
the first set again. So yeah, you've got 16 levels, but 8 sets of aliens, so... You know, like level 1 and level 9 will have the same alien, level 2 and level 10, and so on and so forth. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's not really a lot to say about Jetpack. It's a really fun game. Um, A lot of people, it'll be the first game they try on there. And um, I guess I can see why Jetpack made such a splash and why it kind of skyrocketed Ultimate into... This, you know, getting this cult following it got back in the 80s mm-hmm. yeah it's it's interesting how that following has just pretty much followed the stampers <laughs> like oh we're going to form an entirely new co- new company you know they were pretty low profile for like I guess almost like 9-10 years and then DKC hit and then it was all back again yeah yeah which it almost kind of makes me wonder um, if, I mean, obviously they have Fortune Fish now, their new company, but they haven't really made much uh, besides a couple cell phone games. Maybe it's just a baseless speculation, but I've almost kind of wondered if, you know, this is just their low-profile era while they build their studio, turn out some games to so they're making a profit before they actually sort of get back and doing something revolutionary again. Well, you never know. Um it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, those guys have worked wonders in the past. Um, yeah, and I, did you ever read that uh, interview with Tim Stamper? Um, yeah. The, the, the really recent one, and he was kind of like, yeah, for like the last, you know, 10, 15 years, or however long it had been, or nine years, I think it was, we've been working on like the next best, uh, working on like the future, or something like that. And I, I was like thinking, I was like, well, you guys are like working at Fortune Fish now, so that doesn't entirely... S- what your output hasn't entirely seemed that way, so it makes me think that you're working on something else that you just haven't revealed yet. Yeah, I think there's something coming from those guys. I mean, I can't really, to be honest, I can't see in this day and age what they could be doing that would blow everyone away. But you never know. I mean, I've... Yeah, I mean, you forget those guys are just amazing engineers, too. They, they, they design hardware. They design software. I mean, with their skill set, all they really would need to turn out something amazing is like funding. Yeah. And maybe that's kind of what their mobile apps are about now is like funding whatever like big thing they really want to do. But hey, who knows? Possibly, we'll but then see. again, don't forget the money they made out of the Microsoft sale. <laughs> the, that's true. That was pre- that was pretty substantial. I mean, one <laughs> of them, I think it was Tim, you know, he brought a castle out of his money, out of his earnings. Did he really? Yeah, he spent, it was <laughs> like awesome. eight figures on a castle. <laughs> and he lives in this castle now. <laughs> That's just so perfect. <laughs> yeah, he lives in K. Rool's Keep for reals. Maybe, maybe he, him and J.K. Rowling can like get together and talk about their castles. <laughs> Uh, um, so anyway yeah um, going back 30 years again uh, following Jetpack's success uh, they immediately started work on a sequel uh, Lunar Jetman which actually came out the same year 1983 Uh, Lunar Jetman was a little well it was a lot more complex than Jetpack (laughs) Uh, I yeah I I honestly did not figure out the game fully until I think I talked to you about it. And then I realized that I could put the bomb on the yeah. buggy. 
and then that changed my life. <laughs> Basically, um, it's quite hard to describe the game in an audio format because you kind of have to play it to get a feel for the mechanics, but... Um, Basically, you've got um, you're on a moon. A correct me if I'm wrong, but it's an unnamed moon of another planet, isn't it? As far as I know. Yeah. So you're on a moon, and there are alien space stations that keep charging up missiles to try and attack you and destroy the Earth. Uh, pretty small missiles, actually. I don't know how they can destroy the Earth, but. Um, you kind of you just have to uh, keep blowing up these space stations. So um, there's you're driving around in a lunar buggy, and you can get out of the lunar buggy to pick items up. And you've got like three different items you can attach to the truck. You've got the bomb, which you can put in the trunk uh, to drive up to the space station. You've got the the cannon, which you can attach to the car and truck and to uh, you can use it to shoot the space debris and the missiles that are shooting all over the place. Uh, aliens, rather. Um, and you've got the teleport device, which you can use to link with another teleport, so you can like fast-track around the map. But it's a bit weird, because the map is kind of dynamically generated as you continue through the game. So, the tele... Yeah, and it just loops around too i discovered that and i went and i went farther in the opposite direction that the arrow was pointing for the base yeah. it eventually switched switch around yeah which is just it's just weird like i don't get why they had the three items be individual items i mean yeah it adds to strategy you have to pick one which one you're going to use but unless you're using cheats to get rid of the time limit you kind of always need to have the bomb in the buggy so you can take it to the space station um they mix up the gameplay by having uh, potholes in the road. You need to get out and fill in with girders. Um, and it's we're kind of selling the game short because I think it is really fun. And I think it's a lot more accessible than some of the NES games. It's just, it takes maybe uh, like half an hour to really figure out what you're doing with the game. Yeah, this is obviously a game uh, from the era of instruction manuals. Mm. <laughs> like they couldn't really I mean thankfully there is a bunch of uh, manuals built into the game itself or uh, for real replay but like imagine, I c- couldn't even imagine like a game with that little direction being dropped today without with a, with a with the error where basically you get a disc in a box if you're lucky yeah <laughs> um so yeah check it out check out Luna Jetman um I think it's not my favourite Spectrum game. Uh, like, I mean, uh, Jetpack probably is my favourite. Um, but it was it was a nice little surprise. As I say, it took me a little while to get into it, but I'm glad I gave it the chance, and I'm, I did kind of master it uh, to the point where I managed to get all the stamps for the game without using cheats, which I was pretty proud of. I didn't do that for many of the oh, old nice. games. I am a bad person and did that for none of them. <laughs> I had those cheats on. Oh well, you know, you do need patience, and I mean, we we wanted those stamps as quickly as possible because you wanted to see the the content. Uh, I know. I, I I was so bad with it. I just like for figure. Out, I just needed to figure out the easiest ones, and then I just like farm stamps until I could get all the 
videos I wanted to see. I've sort of slowed down a little bit now and just trying to like smell the roses a little bit more. But yeah, the stamps are just like crack. You want more. Yeah, well, uh, maybe maybe go back to Lunar Jetman when you get a chance and try playing it for a while without any of the cheats to see how well you do. Yeah, probably not very well, <laughs> but could be worth a shot. Could be, could be. Um, so, moving on, um, the next game in the collection is Attic Attack, or Attic Attack, however you pronounce it. Um, do you want to give your thoughts on this one first? Yeah, I, I, this is actually probably another one of my favorites out of the uh, Spectrum titles. It kind of reminds me of like a mix of Zelda and like uh, Gauntlet from the arcades. Because it's really a lot more action-y than Zelda, but at the same time, you're in basically, like, a huge dungeon. Yeah. And there isn't really... And a lot of it is just, like, not getting lost and remembering where to go, remembering where everything is. And basically, the goal is to go through all these different areas and find, um, I think it's, like, three or four pieces of the key you need to actually exit out of the castle or attic or whatever it is. And you have three different classes, which is another thing that kind of makes me reminded of uh, Gauntlet. And you basically, um, your health is sort of like your food, so you actually, you get hungry when enemies hit you and you have to get more food. Even if you don't get hit, though, uh, basically your food meter still goes down. So you're basically not only having to remember your paths by enemies but you also have to like constantly pay attention to your health meter so you don't starve to death yeah it's kind of like um a health system and a time system combined into one like timer and energy because it's constantly going down so yeah was this game before it was before Zelda oh yeah so yeah I don't... like three years before yeah, so I, I don't. I'm not gonna say that like you know, Zelda ripped it off or anything, but it's really I I think shows the strength of the Stampers, the fact that they came up with something like this like three years before Zelda came and changed everything. Yeah, I think um, well there were a few top-down games around this era. Um, I I do think Nintendo, someone on Miyamoto's team, maybe Miyamoto himself, must have been exposed to a Tick Attack somehow. Um, I know a Tick Attack was one of the ones that was actually ported to multiple systems. Like the, I'm pretty sure it's ported to like the Commodore and a couple of others. Uh, according to Wikipedia, which may or may not be correct, it was ported to the BBC Micro, which I think is even more obscure than the Spectrum. Oh no! I well, I it, maybe it sold less, but I had a BBC Micro in school when I was growing up. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, well, hang on. So, was that it? Was it only ported to the micro? Um, according, only that's one thing referenced on Wikipedia, but I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, the only other thing I can think of is perhaps when the Stampers approached Nintendo in '85 and they re- reverse engineered the NES. Um, maybe they showed them their back catalogue of Ultimate games, and um, you know, it, they. Sorry? The Miyamoto saw that and he's like, Haha, mine yeah. now! It's my yeah. idea. Be gone! Because, uh... That would have... Yeah, when they first had a dealings with Nintendo, that would have been, like, a year before Zelda came out. So, 
you never know. It, it, it seems too similar in concept to, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it was just that, that sort of... Great minds think yeah, alike, probably, you know, that, something that like 80s that. Yeah, 80s kind of nebulous, like, hive mind of ideas going amongst video games developers mm-hmm. moving forward. Um, but... Because there's definitely some similarities, but they're also... I think the core way the game plays is very different. Yeah. Because I said, it feels a lot more like Gauntlet, the actual control. It's just that the layout is like Zelda. It's like you drop... It's like if you dropped uh, the Gauntlet... If you made a Zelda dungeon in the Gauntlet engine. If that makes any sense. Kind yeah, of. no, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, completely. Um, but I think that's why I kind of enjoyed this one quite a bit. Because it was like... I, I used to... I. I used to really love Gauntlet 2 as a kid. I had it for the NES. And um, Zelda... I've always loved Zelda, but I actually beat Zelda 1 on the NES for the first time this year. Like, I never actually beat it when I was a kid because it was quite hard for me to get into, you know, after playing the later games. Um, So, because I've recently had quite a bit of experience with Zelda 1 and I've still got that nostalgia for Gauntlet, it was... I think I, it made me appreciate a tick attack a little more, whereas I think some maybe some more modern gamers who aren't used to any of those games and might find it a bit harder to get into. Yeah, it's it's definitely probably there's going to be a certain audience that is just going to be entirely repulsed by the graphics because it's yeah it's a lot worse than NES graphics. The Spectrum is not a powerhouse. It kind of has a little bit of a certain charm, almost to its own, which I think is a little bit more than what I think even like the Commodore or like the Atari had. Yeah. There's something about the Spectrum's sort of very selective color graphics that do give it a little bit more personality and charm than a lot of other personal computer devices in well, that the, time. The problem with the Spectrum, I don't know if you know, but the reason that so many games and stages and characters um just use one solid color uh was because if like two different colored sprites it touched each other there'd be like uh, i think sprite flickering because the hardware Mm -hmm. couldn't really handle mixing two colors together it's really weird no that kind of explains like Especially in the uh, Spectrum version of Jetpack, as compared to um, the the um, Jetpack Refueled version, there's a lot more sprite flickering. Uh, And that's got to be the reason. And that's the reason, I mean, we'll we'll touch on this a little later, but that's the reason why Night Law, each room uses a solid colour, and the next room you go to is always a different colour. You know, there's there's no two rooms the same colour right next to each other in the whole game. Because yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, you remember the Super Game Boy attachment? Yeah, um, that colorized all the games, <laughs> and it basically just made each screen one color, and then made all the sprites one color, and each each scene was like another color. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, have you got you got any more thoughts on a tick attack or? Oh, uh, I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah, I mean, I will just say. Uh, I enjoyed playing through it. I actually, my first playthrough, I did blind without a guide at all. Um, but to get all the stamps, you have to complete it as each character. So for like the second and third character, I used a walkthrough just to get it done quicker. I think my first playthrough was like an hour because <laughs> I was just exploring the whole place. 
Whereas if you use a walkthrough guide, I think you can beat it in like five minutes. Uh, I don't know if it was quite five minutes because I used a guide. But yeah, it's this, this is actually one I kind of regret not playing through blind, but I was kind of just one of those stamps. I think a good way to do it is probably get some like grafting paper or something and just kind of like, as you go, keep track of the room so you don't get lost. And it's kind of like one of those, it kind of like reminds me of some of those old dungeon crawler games where that's kind of what you had to do to keep track of where you are. Because it can get pretty, there's no in-game map. Yeah. So it can get pretty difficult to remember where you are in the dungeon. Yeah. Um, well, like Metroid for the NES was the ultimate one for that where every room looked the same pretty much. So you had to really get some graph yeah. paper and like draw out the game as you played it. And a tick attack. I mean, let's be honest. It's nowhere near that level. It's like three floors, and I think altogether it's probably what less than a hundred rooms in the whole game. Yeah, it's not that bad. There's just a lot of red herrings too. There's all these useless items you can pick up that do absolutely nothing. Yeah, or they've got a purpose which is completely superfluous to the actual quest. Um, yeah, I know I've just found so many things. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'll have it in my inventory, but I don't know what to do with it. Because I think the only thing besides the different colored keys you really need is, uh, is it like the bottle or something? Is it the bottle? What do you distract the... the oh, yeah, I think it's a bottle of beer, I think. Yeah, it's like a beer bottle. And then for some reason, I guess Frankenstein really likes his beer. <laughs> so you can lure him away from the door, one door that you need to get in to get part of the... Uh, the key that actually gets you out of uh, the dungeon. Yeah, the ACG key. Um, I suppose, oh yeah, we should quickly talk about that though. When you were saying about the inventory, um, you can, you've can you only got three slots in your inventory. So it's kind of like that Resident Evil design me- mechanic, the early Resident Evil games where you've got some, such a limited inventory you have to kind of like you know get certain items drop certain items there's there's a bit of strategy to it and i suppose that can add to the tedium if you don't really know the map because you can't just collect everything as you go you will have to drop items occasionally yeah um a a good piece of advice i had because it's because you always go back to the main room with the uh, door in it it's just to dump all the items you don't know what to do with there and then if you need to go back for them you'll always know where where they'll be yeah that's that's good advice actually um, yeah, so yeah, definitely another good one. Really, um, check it out. And if it's a bit hard going, check out a map online. Maybe um, as a last resort, use a step by step guide. But I-, I do advise trying to find your way through at least once because I had a lot of fun with it. And there's not too many games out there like quite like this. So uh, yeah, enjoy and. After that, we've got uh... Saberwolf, and we're not talking about the Game Boy Advance version. This is the original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the original Saberwolf. Again, a game that does share some similarities with The Legend of Zelda for the NES. A little bit, not nearly as much. Because whereas the combat and attack attack is really gauntlet esque and fun. It really feels kind of tedious to me in Saberwolf. Um, like, I I don't care for the combat at all. I don't know. Maybe I just never got good at it. 
It's like, I feel like I'm doing, oh, I'm going to go fight this monster. And I got my sword out. I'm, like, swinging the sword. And then I just get, like, bowled over. Well, tell me this. When when you're fighting, do you tap the button or do you hold the button? Uh, I tap. You've been playing the game completely wrong. Damn it! With Saber Wolf, you hold the button (laughs) and then he holds the... Oh, what's it called? Is it like a... Uh, is it like a fencing sword he's got? It's like a... Yeah, it, it, it's like this little... I don't know. I mean, he's supposed to be kind of like this English gentleman explorer, so I imagine he has like a little fencing sword. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you hold the button, and he holds it out in front of him, and constantly swings it, um, and like twists it in front of him. If you tap the button, he keeps putting it back away. Every time you tap it, he quickly... You know, he'll just bring it out for a split second and you will get hit because you leave yourself open to attack. Um, this is why I've been so bad. Yeah, yeah. It took me a little <laughs> while to get used to it. But yeah, you, you, you're supposed to hold the button the entire time when you're facing an enemy. Yeah, I just turned on infinite lives. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I beat it. See, that, that is probably one of the drawbacks to having these cheats at your disposal. Sometimes rather than figuring it out, it's easier to turn it on. Yeah. Well, I, I've been guilty of that a couple of times, so I can't say I blame you. But, um, yeah, Saberwolf, um, we should sort of talk about the game. Um, it's it's, another, it's a top-down uh, adventure game, uh, but it's entirely, unlike Attic Attack, uh, it's kind of the polar opposite, where it's entirely exterior, whereas the other game was entirely yeah. indoors. Uh, and everything really looks the same, even more so than Attic Attack. Because that at least had some visual, there was some cool visual anomalies in a lot of the rooms. It was a lot easier to figure out where you were. Saber Wolf, everything looks identical. I swear even a lot of the screens are literally nothing changed, they're just in a different location. And I I honestly don't think I would have been able to complete it without a guide. Yeah, I mean, it's... (sighs) I think visually it's probably the best looking game so far that we've covered on the collection. Um, I don't know if you think a tick attack was better looking, but I think the deep lush jungle and how much how much detail they have in each single screen. I think whether you love the game or not, visually it's very impressive for the time. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they did a bad job of it. It's just I, I feel like it wasn't as good as the previous game. I know it's not really the same series. It's kind of the start of the new series, but there's definitely some similarities between Saber Wolf and Attack Attack. And it really, to me, it felt like it was a little bit of a step backward from the previous. Okay, fair enough. Um, the The main goal of the game is you have to collect four pieces of the ACG amulet to open the door to the underworld. Um, yep. So basically, the object of the game is to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, the problem with this, unlike a tick attack, is the amulet pieces are randomly generated around the world map. Um, there are certain locations where they can spawn. You know, it's not like they could spawn any one of a million places. I think there's like, um, I think there's like sixteen different locations that the four pieces could spawn in. So mm-hmm. you could be really lucky and get them quite quick, or it could take you a while. Um, annoyingly, on Rare Replay, one of the stamps is to visit every single jungle hut around the map, so you kind of have to explore the whole game either way if you want to get all the stamps. 
Um, and the huts, from what I could tell, they didn't do anything gameplay-wise. I don't even understand why they were there. Um, I think it was probably just to encourage you to visit all the maps. I don't think they're just good visual landmarks. Like, I, I liked that the huts were there just because it kept me semi-oriented because it was so easy to get lost. And that if I could, like, do a safe state at a hut, and then I would just sort of, like, go from there. And then if I made a wrong turn, I could reload right back to the hut and then try to go where I was attempting to go again. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, safe states weren't in the original yeah. game. So, I don't know what their original purpose was, but I find them useful now. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, they're good, good kind of landmarks now to have. So, um, now interestingly, hang on. Sorry, dude, I dropped my uh, microphone. You're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, um, this is as far as I know because I haven't played the other Spectrum games, which there were a few more released in between now, which haven't been on the collection, but. Definitely from these first four games, this was the first game to really include any kind of power-up system, where like the orchids would grant you different abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there's like the the purple one that makes you invincible but reverses all your controls. Yeah, and then you've got I think the blue one, which is like God mode, where you're invincible and twice as fast. Um, yeah, I, I I can't remember which one does what, but there's like five different colours and they all give you various abilities. I think there's only one which is completely negative and it might be red, but there's one which basically locks all controls except for your walking, so you can't attack. What did the white one do? Isn't that one just like nothing? I'm trying to remember. Um, I feel like I went over a white one and then nothing happened. I was like, oh, that's a chip. Possibly. I was like, it's been it's been like six weeks since I played through it, and it was like one brief Sunday afternoon, so I can't actually remember too much. I I had a quick yeah. go on it earlier, like I sort of played through all the, had a quick go on all the Spectrum games before we did this, but um, yeah, I can't remember, but there was definitely a unique ability attributed to each orchid. So, um, but yeah, okay, you should go and try playing it, you at home, and uh, see what you discover. And please hold down the attack button, unlike me. Yeah, unlike this guy who just <laughs> just doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, nope. So you collect all the amulet pieces and you head into the underworld, which leads directly into the next game, which is a direct mm-hmm. sequel called Underworld. Yes, and it's uh, almost a pinball simulator. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the first ever spelunking simulator in video game history, and probably the last. Yeah, I. Yeah, it is really weird, and it's just not what you're expecting to happen. Like how your character moves, how he reacts to enemies, is just so different than a normal video game. It's like basically enemies don't hurt you; they just knock you around like a pinball. It, like all of your jumps have to be timed like perfectly because like you the jump animation is sort of it's always the same distance so you just gotta make sure you're at the right place hit jump and then you'll go that distance yes and if you miss you'll bounce around like a ball save man basically jumps like a frog in this game so like if you jump you jump at like a 45 degree angle so you go up and right the same distance 
uh, and it doesn't matter if you hold any direction it doesn't matter you can't change your momentum or direction mid-air from what I remember um, but if you jump high enough to the ceiling you shoot out a rope so you can lower yourself down chambers um, but then as Dave just said if you get hit by an enemy you go hurtling off in a direct you know like a pinball and if you fall down far enough down a shaft you die so it's an interesting experiment <clears throat> um you know i was i'd never played it but well i haven't played most of these games but i'd never really even heard anything about underworld before so it was death yeah interesting it was an interesting uh, inclusion so they didn't include all the Saberman games, so I was wondering... I don't know, I find it kind of odd that they picked Underworld and Nightlore as two of the other ones. I guess Nightlore I kind of understand because it really introduces uh, the wolf that's kind of associated with um, Saberman and later turned into a Killer Instinct well, character. Well, he was in Cyberwolf as well. Yeah, and I knew he was in there because of the name, but he didn't really have like a... Big of a role. I well, he appears. Think. He, he randomly bit... appears as an enemy every now and again. Yeah, like I feel like I only saw him a couple times. Yeah, uh, he didn't. From what I remember, I don't think he's in Underworld at all. There's like three bosses. I'm pretty sure he's not in there. Um, <clears throat> it's. Uh, but but what's interesting about Underworld is there are three different endings. Um, have you actually have you finished the game yet? Uh, not yet. I beat like the first boss at um at some point. Um, when I'm ready for some punishment, I'm gonna go back and try it again. <laughs> um, now I'll 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 admit I actually t- to finish the game, uh, I I used the cheat to turn off the enemies because it was just getting too annoying. <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't use too much rewind. Um, and I did actually explore most of the game without a guide. I think I used a guide once to find one of the bosses because I'd like walk right past him. And I, I just got a bit pissed off with it, but um, yeah, the the three different endings, um, depending which exit you get. Uh, now, if you get, <clears throat> there's like an exit right at the top of the map. There's one right at the bottom, and I think there's one right dead center. Um, now, if you if you exit the game from the top of the cavern, then that leads into Night Law. If you, I think if you exit in the middle, it leads into Pentagram, and if you leave at the bottom, it leads into Maya Mare, or Miri Mary, as you call it. <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't actually, which is never actually released. No. Um, I was going to go spiraling off into the sequels, but no, no, we'll, we'll finish off Underworld first. Um, do you have any more like thoughts on the game, or? Um, I don't want to get too much more into it. We're already getting a little bit short on time. It's, yeah, probably one of the Spectrum games you're going to play the least in the collection. It's it's definitely an interesting experiment, and it's worth playing to just kind of marvel at a game you're probably never going to play anything like ever again. But it, it the novelty wears off pretty quick and gets slightly frustrating after a bit. Yeah, I think... There was just too many elements which made it a bit of a chore to play. Like, if they'd included the way the system works with the enemies and you know not giving you damage but knocking you about, if they had that but without the full damage, I think it might have been a little funner because 
back in the day, especially without the cheats, I think it would have been really frustrating to play through this one because there were so many times I got knocked off my rope. Um, and you, you, you do collect different items, like um, I think like a sword that you can constantly shoot, which is weird. Um, at... No, Link can do it. Well, when he has full health, so... <laughs> okay, I suppose that's another thing that's sort kind of. of inspired Zelda. Uh... Or maybe Saber Man just has like a quiver full of swords and he just keeps throwing them. They somehow <laughs> fell. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I had fun with it, but that was through turning the enemies off, which obviously you're not really intended to do that. So, mm, whatever that says, I don't know. Just go with it. Just give it a try. See what you think. There, there is quite... I've seen quite a few people speak highly of the game, so it's... Um, Maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll see something that Dave didn't and I didn't really. So, yeah, give it a shot. Why not? You're you're getting thirty games for thirty dollars. You may as well play them all. <laughs> so, um, the only other Saberman game on the collection is the next game, uh, and it's not for some reason. I don't know why they didn't include Pentagram. Uh, obviously I haven't played it because it's not on here but Night Law was the next game released anyway and interestingly about Night Law, I don't know if you know this but it was, they developed and completed Night Law for release before they'd even made Saber Wolf, did you know that? I didn't know yeah. that uh, that's crazy, interesting story yeah, the Stampers developed uh, Night Law very early on, I think after Jetpack but they decided that the industry wasn't ready for it yet and they thought it wouldn't sell so they decided to hold off a little bit and they developed Saber Wolf and Underworld as the leading games to kind of like build a fan base for the character yeah I guess it's a kind of a smart move if you're kind of pushing into something quite as new and remarkable as Nightlore was with its isometric viewpoint I imagine this is one of the first games to even try that, if not the first. Yeah. Uh, Night Lore again. <laughs> it's an interesting experiment, but I didn't enjoy it much, dude. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I'm barely touched it so far. I've played it a little bit. But it is just really slow. It's I one of those games I wish there was also like a speed up button or something. This movement seems slow. Everything, all the perspectives are kind of weird. It's really hard to like time jumps, and you gotta do these weird things. You like throw down items to like get on top of them, and then jump off the items to make jumps. And yeah, I'm sure it's really revolutionary for its time, but it just doesn't really hold up that well. It's very frustrating to play, and also because the items that you need to to complete the game basically what you have to do there's a there's a cauldron in the center of the map and you have to throw items in one at a time in a specified order but the order of the items required is randomized every time you play and where the items load up on the map is randomized each time you play so it's quite a hard game to beat even with even with the the help of a guide um there are only certain rooms where items will appear, but obviously, <laughs> you, 
there's kind of like a graph on the strategy guides which show if one item's in one place, that means another item's going to be in said place. But it's it's a lot to wrap your head around, and I don't know why they overcomplicated it. I don't know why they didn't go with the a tick attack style of having, you know, the items in a set place, and you just have to learn the game and memorize where everything is. Yeah. I feel like a little bit with maybe Ultimate got a little bit over ambitious near the end because that was kind of their thing was like you know the future now kind of development yeah. style and there was a lot of experimentation that did so much I don't think turned out as well as it could have. Yeah, they. It's like they 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 tried to reach for the stars, which you know fair enough it did pay off for them in the end, but I think some yeah some of these things they tried just didn't really work out too well and night law i know that's got that's probably after jetpack the most popular spectrum game they developed i know that's got yeah that's got a massive cult following (laughs) (laughs) weird i guess it's probably one of those games you have to have like nostalgia for well i don't know because uh i mean mf wolf off dk vine as far as i know he doesn't have nostalgia for it but he said uh about a month ago on DK Vine that uh, he absolutely adored Night Law. Like, he really, really got into it. Huh. Maybe I just need to give it another shot. I don't know. It's I'm just holding off on it until I play through other games I'd rather play through first. And I was kind of trying to, like, 100% all the Spectrum games in order, so I'll probably get to it when I finish uh, Underworld. Mm. Ugh. But I think it's because Underworld and Night Lore are the only two I haven't got everything in now. And yeah, they're both a little little bit more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I as I say, I, I appreciate what they were trying to do, and in some ways it really does push boundaries. And I'm sure back then it would have been absolutely incredible to have this, you know, in in those days what seemed like a fully three D world, you know, right before your eyes. But uh yeah, I think this is one which actually were. I got the most enjoyment just playing the snapshots rather than the game itself. Mm-hmm. So, did you did you do the snapshots for this game yet? Uh, some of them. I can't remember which ones I did, but I remember I tried a few. Some of them were still seemed kind of difficult, even even with just the snapshots. And I think I might need to actually play it more to even figure out what I'm supposed to do in some of them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I as I said, this is probably one of the games out of the whole collection I've touched the least so far. I probably really should have played it again before we did the podcast, but I ended up playing Conquer this morning instead because I was so excited about Twelve Tales. I wanted to play Conquer. <laughs> no, well, it's sort. Of, I mean, we've kind of got two different perspectives. We've got your sort of hazy memories from what a month or two back, whereas I completed it a bit more recently. So, mm-hmm. no, I mean. Yeah, it kind of sounds like we're really being down on these Spectrum games, but I want to make it clear absolutely, absolutely that I, I respect all seven Spectrum games on this collection, and I got at least some enjoyment from all of them, and I can appreciate what they were for the time, and I actually think they, as a whole, this era of games, especially the ones selected for the collection... For some reason, to me, they hold up a little better than the NES games. Um, some, yeah. yeah. 
it, it depends depends on I guess the NES games. Um, but yeah, there's like if you're looking at like Jetpack or Attic Attack, I think definitely those those games probably are way better than NES games. Yeah. Could be a little give or take, but yeah, there's so yeah we're not being down on them at all. There's definitely some great games in here. Just a couple of them that may differ for you, your opinions, but for us at least, us getting into some of these was just really hard. Yeah. Um, but it, that that could differ. Yeah, and I mean uh, that kind of takes us on to the final game in the collection, which is uh, Gun Fright. Um, and I'll be honest, I kind of knew most of Rare's early games, even if it was just by the title before Rare Replay came along, but I'd never heard of Gun Fright. I'm I know I've heard of it. But like the name didn't ring a bell, but only because I've like you know read through lists of all games Ultimate Rare released, yeah. so I know my eyes have passed over it on numerous occasions. But it's never really referenced <laughs> or talked about much, even really in other Rare games like Saberman and Saberwolf. Of course, all their games have been referenced countless times throughout Rare's history. Gunfright is kind of just like one of those games you saw and you saw its name, never really knew what was in it. Kind of an interesting choice for the collection because I you would think that they would have went up with a pentagram, the Saberman game over this, but playing it you kind of see why because it's actually a pretty enjoyable game, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I agree, dude. I think um, out of the two 3D isometric, isometric spectrum games on the disc, I think this is definitely the better one. Um, I mean, again, it's got its weird little historical oddities that don't really hold up too well. Um, but it's definitely a lot funner to play. I find it, once you figure out the system and what you're actually doing, I think it's a lot more accessible. Uh, basically, you play the new sheriff of a town in the Old West. And um, you basically just have to keep killing all these bad guys. Um they, they have bounties, so obviously you get money for each one you kill. Um, you start off with like a set amount of money. and um, But what's interesting is that they actually bring a little economics into it because the, the money, the cost of bullets keeps rising and falling and um, the cost for accidentally killing a townsperson, like the, the, the fine keeps rising and falling... Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it, it could be one minute that a bullet costs a dollar, and then a couple of minutes later, the bullets could cost, like, $50. So. <laughs> and and I, I love the horse. It, it's not even really a horse. Isn't it kind of like this little, like, inflatable tube thing you put around your waist or something like that? Yeah, yeah, because basically when you walk into the horse, <laughs> uh, suddenly you're going faster, but... Like, it's still just the main character's sprite with this horse ring around it, which is really weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks like you're, like, it looks like a like a pool yeah. toy or something that's shaped like a horse, and you just, like, put it around you, and then you just suddenly gain the confidence to run yeah. really fast. <laughs> Though not too much confidence, because if you touch a woman, you yeah. still die. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but, yeah, it's cool because um, you've got, like, it's quite a large town, uh, in Gunfright, um, but what's really unique to this game, which didn't exist in Night Law, is you can actually change camera angles. If you press the Y button, it flips the image. Um, I don't know if you use that feature much. 
I used it a little bit, but I found it a little disorienting. Yeah. You don't usually need to do it, to be honest. It's, it's, it's a nice that they put it there for the people who want it, but I I honestly played 90% of it just keeping the camera angle they started me Yeah, I, I did the same, but I think the fact they even thought to include it again showed just how much rare we're thinking outside the box. And I think as a novelty back then, to change the camera angle, that would have been pretty astounding. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool if you hadn't seen anything like that yeah. before. Especially to be able to do that like so quickly on like a, a a machine like the Spectrum. I imagine that was probably was an easy technical feat to flip the the screen instantaneously at a button press like that. Yeah, because even if I mean I don't know how it was pulled off on a technical level. I mean I don't know if it sort of. It, it, like the game might have thought it was like a separate map, and you press the button to just like warp onto that map. If you get what I mean, mm. but even yeah. still, whichever way they did it, the fact that it happens instantaneously with a button press is pretty impressive. So, um, but yeah, so you, I said before, you have to track down these outlaws, which have got bounties on their head, and when you find them, um, you sort of shoot. You shoot the sprite in real time, and then the gameplay changes to a first-person perspective, like a quick draw. Mm. Um, This is the part I'm always kind of rubbish at, is actually hitting them first. Yeah, these can get really tough, um, because it's weird, like, sometimes it's better to wait for them to draw, and then quickly shoot them, and other times it's better to wait for them to come close to the crosshair and then try and shoot them in a split second um, it is a little bit unfair the timing and the hit detection can be a bit off um, I did yeah, abuse I, the rewind feature quite a bit for these yeah I did too um, some of them are definitely doable but like some of the later ones it's just if you do like what is there like 25 you know, like unique ones or something like that or 20 I think, I I think it's 25, but I'm not sure. It's Okay, so yeah, 20 unique bounties, and by the time you get near the end, like they get really quick, and I just basically having to kept rewind and, until I could finally shoot them. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it can be quite trying, and uh, I, I don't know, I... I I, 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 I appreciate, as I say, I appreciate it a lot more than Night Law. Um, but. Yeah, I, I think this is. this. I bet you this is kind of one of those, like, hidden gems when they were going through the games. And they were, like, deciding the Spectrum games. And they're probably going through them all. And they found this, like, hey, this one is actually really fun. And we should include it. Because I can't feel that. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a lot of people that work there that knew about it. But I, I feel like not a lot of people knew about Gunfright. Yeah, it's definitely. I think this, along with Diggity Rock on the NES, are probably like the two real hidden gems that no one really knew about before, and now they've kind of, yeah, it's given them a bit more exposure, and um, yeah, yeah, I, I was quite happy with it. Uh, I thought it was, it was a good way to mark the end of the Spectrum era uh, before moving on to the NES games, and I, I kind of avoided it for the first week or two when I got Rare Replay, but. When I finally got into it and figured out how the systems work, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yep, and uh, all these games were pre-rare, so technically these are all before the 30-year anniversary, because 
<laughs> it was just really kind of weird because, you know, it says, like, established 1985, and then you go into the game section, and then all these games were released before 1985. So if anyone was wondering why, hopefully we cleared that up a little bit. <laughs> well, Gunfright was the one exception. Gunfright was actually 1986. Oh, yeah, that is right. And, yeah, it looks like they, they the last Ultimate game put out was actually a box set in 1988. So, yeah, through weird copyright sales and reasons, there are still games being put out under the Ultimate name after the Stampers were already making stuff at Rare. So, what was the. So, that box set that came out, what was on the box set? Uh, I would have to look that up. But um, it is on the, the list that I actually... Like, I actually saved the big, long list that Rare used to have on their yeah. website before they kind of took it all down. And that's what I used as the template when I for the Rare and Friends uh, li- game lists that I have because I kind of wanted to bring that back. That was actually one of my main... Strange mot- enough, that was one of my main motivations for opening the site was the fact that they took down the history list that they used to have. And I was like, oh, I should, like put that all up and then make like a page for every game and that would be super cool and yeah that's kind of a tangent but yeah um, I'd have to look into it I think it was I think it was all like pretty much the Jetpack and Saberman stuff and then uh, maybe a few other games like Attic Attack it didn't have the really recent ones um, that may or may not have been made with the Stampers involvement okay um, so that kind of brings us to the end of um, the Spectrum games in Rare Replay. Um, there's not really much more to say. I mean, I was going to give my final thoughts, but I think I've kind of summed it all up through talking about the games individually. Yeah, yeah, final thoughts are probably a little bit pointless at this point. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, and we've already gone over a little bit. We always shoot for two hours at, at the most, and we've been going over... Um, this is a completely unrelated note, but I forgot to do this earlier, but I wanted to give another uh, thank you to uh, Chad and Heil at DK Vine, who have really been just plugging the show for us on their show, and it's really appreciated. And I want to give another proper thank you for Chad in particular for uh, helping me with the iTunes FTP issues we were having. And he took time out of his day to help me out when he had other things to do. And I did really appreciate that. Yeah, what actually happened that night? Because I was kind of out at that time and I saw he left a message for you and then said, meet me on Skype. I mean, did he he just like talk Um, you through every step of the way? uh, He changed something on their end. Um, Apparently I was like logging into the wrong, like I was set so that I would log into the FPT basically to the play, a place where um, the logcast wasn't located. Like, I assumed I was logging in to, like, this the root folder of, of the form watch, and then I would try to change to the logcast directly, and then I would just say there was nothing there. So apparently I was in, like, my own special folder with my name on it, and I didn't know where okay. I was. And yours had been set up correctly for some reason, but... Yeah, but that's we'll talk yeah, about that yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, sure. But literally, if, if if you had checked it, it would have been fine for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well. So yeah, so that we should actually have this out on iTunes relatively around the same time as the YouTube release now, because now um, we got that sorted out. Yeah, and um, we're still going to be uploading the MP3 on Mega 
um, so people can get the the MP3 just a standalone file if they want. But um, I'm actually this is a world exclusive for the logcast. Even Dave doesn't know this. Um, <laughs> uh, there's no there's nothing final in place yet. But um, I was thinking towards the end of this month, uh, next time I get paid, I'm actually thinking of buying um, some separate server space to have like a just a dedicated web space um, for the MP3s, um, but much more easily accessible uh sort of like a enlist mm. format so people can just download the, you know without because mega apparently some people have had issues using it and apparently it doesn't work too well on mobile phones so i'm going to look at an easier solution and i'm going to pay for that out of my own pocket if it comes to it just to have some extra space and bandwidth so oh. yeah well that would be definitely appreciated and um for for the mega thing for mobile, I believe you're supposed to download a mega app, and then that helps you with the issues people yeah. have. Yeah, I believe I haven't tested it myself yet. But it's just I don't. But I believe I that's think... yeah, it's another step. But until you know we get that set up, uh, that might be a solution for you. Yeah, um, yeah. If people want to try that, uh, you know, anyway, the, the most comfortable way to listen to the show. Obviously, you want to find your own. Some people love iTunes. Um, I know Mitch. MF Wolf was one of the first people to ask if we were going to bother with iTunes, so it's good we've got that sorted out. Some people don't care about having it on YouTube. I know Chad told me he was listening to the show on YouTube in chunks on his way to and from work, which is quite cool, actually. Um, whereas with me, personally, with every podcast I listen to, I just like to have the MP3 on my phone so I can just listen to it as and when. So yeah. I just find that the easiest way. So, um, yeah, a uh, lot... Like, as uh, as Dave said, another big thanks to uh, Chad and Hyle. I just listened to the start of their newest episode of the conversation before we shot this, or recorded this, and uh, <laughs> quite an unexpected plug. Um, definitely appreciated, and um, yeah, uh, we hope everyone continues to listen to and enjoy the show. And uh, we've got some pretty exciting plans lined up for the next few weeks. Um, we hope you keep tuning in. Yep, um, I guess until next time, uh, we'll see you later. Have a good one.